This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. This is good. When it gets strange like this, it's a good thing. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one animated TV season at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. Excited and, and in a weird way, kind of sad about coming to the end of, uh, of the Star Wars shows. Yeah, this is like, it's been what, two and a half, three months of just straight Star Wars uh, TV shows? So it's going to be really weird going back to films. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have so much more time on my hands now, though. <laughs> yes, that will be nice. Um, so we are current, we are on the uh, fourth season of Star Wars Rebels. And to help us talk about that, we are joined by Blaine Grimes from Home One Radio. Welcome back, Blaine. Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to talk more Star Wars with you guys. It's impressive. You've been moving along at a pretty good clip since, you know, last you had me on. Yeah, I am rather shocked at how few uh, weeks we missed doing a season a week. Yeah. <laughs> It's been intense, but yeah, it's it's been crazy. I've been I've, my entire it's like my entire concept of Star Wars has been altered by just pouring so much into these uh, these shows. There's, they they really put a lot of the uh, lore, like, like universe changing lore into these shows. It's crazy. And uh, Blaine, uh, real quick for anyone who hasn't listened to the uh, previous episodes where you or Josh have been on, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your show. Sure. Well, I am a co-host of Home One Radio, which is a weekly Star Wars podcast where we dive deep into all of the stories of Star Wars, books, movies, comics, you name it, uh, young adult books, sticker books, I don't know, anything, anything, <laughs> we haven't done a sticker book yet, um, but but anything Star yet. Wars we, we dig into and we kind of stay away from news and speculation, uh, the news and speculation side of things, um, and just stick with all of the Star Wars stories that we have. Do people actually speculate about Star Wars? I can't imagine. And uh, y'all are actually currently going through the uh, the uh, Clone Wars, right? Yep, we are. Very slowly. Not near as fast as you guys. <laughs> so yeah, if, I, if for some reason you want to hear more Clone Wars stuff after we've yammered about it for all those hours, <laughs> uh, check out their show. So yeah, before we get begin our discussion, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes, and then like us on Facebook. So there's really not any behind-the-scenes uh, material that uh, was all that relevant, just that um. This was the final uh, season of the show by choice from the creators. Uh, it wasn't forced upon them like it was with the Clone Wars, which is a good thing. We got to see a, a Dave Filoni actually end what he started, um, for better or worse. I may have things to say about that. Um, and due to our tendency to prattle on for way too long, we won't have Blaine for the entirety of our review. Um, we will not have him for the Heroes of Mandalore and In the Name of the Rebellion two-parters, uh, but for the rest of the episodes after that, he will be joining us. So... Bye, Blaine. We'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs> and Blaine is gone. Um, so for the first episode, the uh, two-part premiere, we have the Heroes of Mandalore. So the ghost crew joins Sabine and Clan Ren in an attack on the prison where her father Ulrich is being held by the Empire. They take the prison and with some last-minute help from Bo-Katan and... Uh, I'm not sure if it's still Death Watch, but whatever her organization is now. But her father isn't there. He is moved. He's being moved on a transport to Capital City for execution. They attack the convoy and rescue him, but the Empire sends an advanced weapon that appears to kill Ursa and Tristan. In part two, we learn that they actually survived. But the weapon the Empire is using is the one that Sabine created uh, to target Mandalorian armor while she was back working for the Empire. I think we learned about that in Trials of the Darksaber. Uh, so this causes the other Mandalorians to distrust her. 
They launch an attack on the Star Destroyer where the weapon is being held. Sabine is captured and Gar's brother Tiber Saxon captures her and tries to force her to finish the weapon. She instead programs it to target star, uh, Stormtrooper armor. They destroy the weapon and escape. In the end, Sabine gives the Darksaber to Bo-Katan and rejoins the Ghost Crew. I got a lot of problems with these two episodes. Well, the first one's it's fun, pretty decent. Uh, a lot of cool action. And the, the whole... Uh, attack on the military convoy that's transporting her father is really uh riffing on uh, Ra the raiders uh car uh, truck chase and this is just a lot of really fun moments a lot of just jetpacks and people falling off vehicles and this is even a scene i think isn't there a scene where ezra kind of goes along underneath of it yeah basically copying indiana jones it's just a lot of fun action uh what, what, what really annoys me is towards the end when over the radio we hear, oh, oh the Empire's got a new weapon, oh, and then kind of it, it, it makes it, it's all, it's basically telling us that Ursa and Tristan were killed by whatever new terrifying weapon the Empire has. And then they go out there and they see all these bodies, it's just a bunch of bodies which are of Mandalorian, well, not even bodies, just Mandalorian armor and ash outlines of Mandalorians who were killed. And it leaves us on this really dark note of, oh, no, they're dead. But next episode, oh, no, they're fine. It's happy in Disney show. It just, it felt really cheap. It, it felt like oh, season four going like season four. Oh, my gosh. They're really, there's serious stakes here. And like, oh, no. All, sure, all these faceless Mandalorians dead. But anybody you care about, they're safe and sound. Yay. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like this show has reached the point to where they can do stuff like that. You know? Yeah. And, and I feel like they've been, there are other times in the show like in season three where I'm like, oh, wow, you know, like they're really letting themselves go here. That's cool. And so, yeah, whenever the, the first episode finished, I'm like, holy, you know, holy crap, they Thanosed them. You know, they're, they're just ash piles <laughs> all over the place. This is, this is, I mean, it's brutal and dark, but like good on them for, for going here. And then I started the next episode and they just kind of walk up and they're like, oh, it's okay. You warned us just in time. I was like, no, I know for a fact she didn't because the camera was with you guys. Like, you saw them. You were with the rest of everyone else. The camera did not cut back to Sabine and, like, allow long enough time to pass by for you guys to to get away. Like, it's a cheap ending. Um, the emotion doesn't work, like, on rewatches. It's just, it, it's kind of annoying. Yeah, and I am absolutely not one of the guys who say you have to kill people in order to have stakes. You don't. I mean, it, it's all in how you craft the scene. But if you're going to give us an emotional scene, you know, that, that all that buildup and then the emotional scene of, oh, they're reacting to death and just to, to, to have them not die and not for any story reason, it's just lucky. Like, if you had, if there was, like, you can do a fake death and make it go within story, it's just... You got to do something. If it's just nothing but a fake out, it feels cheap. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I was I was disappointed in that. I did have I did have a good a, a bit of fun with uh with a lot in these episodes though. Like, you, yeah, I I really like that that uh attack on the convoy. There's that awesome moment where Kanan's in there and he like turns off the lights um with the force and then he just goes like crazy in there. It's super cool. And Is that the one where they cut to the outside and the guys flying out or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's a that's really cool, and then, um, just a lot of the jetpack action. It's all like, that's always really cool to me. Um, it's just I th I think the way that Filoni plays with the camera whenever he's just flying through the sky is always really fun. Um, 
But yeah, I I do have a problem, I think, with with both of these episodes as considering they kind of act as the conclusion to the Mandalorian story that was started in season three. And mm-hmm. Trials of the Dark Saber was so strong and so was so was he, uh, the the uh, the one where they returned to Mandalorian. Yeah, I was gonna was say called. like and you know, the the follow up continued that level of maturity and and sense of weight uh and consequences and things felt important and heavy and you know here i i, I don't dislike you know comedic stuff in action like i said I, I really like the attack on convoy but the episode starts off with ezra just kind of like flying all over the place with his jet pack and just everything it, it seems a bit too lighthearted. and i was just you know thinking about how strong the uh season two premiere was and how and even though i don't think season three was quite as strong season three uh started off really strong as well and and here i'm like man i just i feel like you know this is your final season you really want to start off and you know wow us and it just kind of felt par for the course and in tone and actually not even par for the course in tone it, it felt like they kind of scaled back the sense of weight that that this arc had before i think they thought they were doing that with uh the vaporizer weapon which is is definitely dark but uh but it's immediately undercut by you know having it not not kill anyone we like um so yeah um also we get the return of bo-katan from uh, the clone wars and were you thrown off by the fact that she looks even younger now than she did in the clone wars show i actually i thought she looked older i thought that they like it, it looked like they kind of change the the skin tone and put a couple of like uh maybe like wrinkles under the eyes a tad bit like i think it was just for me this the smoother rivals animation just kind of looked like she got a facelift or something. Uh, uh i think what threw me off more was was just like here's bo katan she's back mm-hmm. but but she was she they were establishing her as one of the good guys towards the end of uh and the end of a uh, seat of season five i think it makes sense that she's now fighting the empire yeah, and it's cool to see her back. I always love this kind of like continuation uh, between the two series with these characters. Mm-hmm. And there's a cool moment uh, after they show up and and help them finish taking the prison, where Sabine offers her the the uh, dark saber. This is quiet moment where she where she just stares at it for a while, and you just you know you know that that's the thing that killed her sister back in. The Clone Wars. Is, is, I, I don't. I don't think it's even referenced, but it's just kind of you see it in her character. It's, it's kind of crazy the stories they're able to get out of just the dark saber, you know, uh, and, and the emotional reaction because it carries so much history with it. Going into Rebels, when you know, putting it under the portrait of Satine, or what what it means for Sabine being a Mandalorian, and and what it would mean for Bo to see it whenever it's held out. Um, it's become like such a cool little piece of star wars yeah definitely and so in the uh in the second episode we find out that it was actually sabine who created this weapon and i don't want to rag on sabine because i like sabine but it's getting a bit ridiculous like she's she's a great warrior an explosive expert artist apparently she was a teenage technical genius as well it's like okay like you know she's a good character you don't need to make her a total prodigy in all forms of every art and technology it, just, it felt a bit much that she you know she was creating this as a teenager um 
But this this is what I took to be the the weapon referenced in in the Trials of the Dark Saber. Yeah, true. But yeah, to me, but it didn't still. really feel like a a reveal, as a as opposed to just like this is what we already kind of told you she did, but now you get to see it. Mm, but yeah, but it's still a bit much for the person. Um, but uh, what really annoys me is that the fact that as soon as they find out, everyone's like, "Oh no, all oh, horrified! How dare you traitor!" But we found out in Trials of the Dark Saber. She saw what was happening and she was like a whistleblower. She went to it back to her people and said, this is what the Empire is doing. And they betrayed her. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that the Mandalorians are all angry at her when she is the one who told them what was going on. And they actually, they never, and they ignored her and turned on her for even telling them what was, what was happening. It's just, it, it felt like a lot of the, this episode wasn't really continuing the story of Trials of the Dark Saber and, um, and with the, I forget the episode where, the, where she goes and fights Gar Saxon. Like, it didn't feel like it was a continuing that story. It felt like it was just trying to end it as soon as possible by creating this conflict that we had already – that they had told us about previously. And that was not her fault. It was the fault of the people that, that turned on her when she tried to warn them. Uh, so the way I took it in Trials of the Darksaber was that when she came back and she was like the whistleblower, they kind of threw her under the bus. Like, in terms of like the leadership would have done that. But to me, it, I could kind of buy that the just the average Mandalorian, like a lot of the people that we see here, um, they didn't get the full picture. All they're told, you know, considered like you wouldn't, as the leaders of Mandalore throwing someone under the bus, you wouldn't reveal all of your faults. So I just kind of took it as it's kind of understood that, that Sabine created this weapon and she is a traitor and maybe they didn't get the full story. But I guess that doesn't work considering... You know, you would expect Bo-Katan and, and then obviously her parents. They all know the the big picture, so there really shouldn't be a... a although, I I guess, you know, they could still be upset that she created a, a weapon designed specifically to target the armor in the first place. Yeah, but it, it, it would make sense if they actually, you know, if they were planning on doing some continued drum with the character. But all it feels like is the fact is that they realized, oh, wait... If Sabine's on Mandalore, that means she's not with the Ghost Crew. Oh, we got we got to scrap all everything we did in the, in the end of season three to get to just break all that down again to get her back to the status quo of just being explosives girl on the Ghost Crew. Like I, I, it's not they could do some drama there, but the, the fact that they acknowledged that this was all, was also a, a huge fault on the Mandalorians for rejecting her warning. And they just use that as an excuse to okay, sh she made this, so she can't be leader of Mandalore. She gives the sword of Bogotan and she's back on the ghost crew. It just feels like everything that was building up, we were building up to of, you know, having the character break off from just being part of the ghost crew and being her own character and being, you know, a great leader in Mandalore. It's just, oh, all of that's just, we're just scrapping all of that. We're just putting it back on the ghost crew. It's like everything that happened with her in season three is just non-existent now for the rest of uh, season four. Yes, I, I didn't take it as, you know, she built this weapon so she can't be a leader. Um... I kind of saw that moment as a kind of a sense of maturity from from Sabine. You know, she accepted the responsibility, like the call to action with the dark saber. She she won it um, according to their traditions, and she was able to, in a sense, unite Mandalore. Um, and so I saw that moment as sort of like I I kind of I made what I I made right my faults, and now I'm going to pass it to someone who's in a better position to, to be a leader. But she had an entire episode about 
she had to learn how to wield it. And the next episode was where she had to win it. Yeah, in a two episode arc all about Sabine and the Darksaber. And then just next next time we see her, just hand it off. And then just leave that entire subplot behind. Just It feels really cheap. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it, but I don't... I don't necessarily think it undermines everything that happened. I think because she had to learn to wield it and she had to win it in those two episodes, it it makes the passing maybe a bit more meaningful where it's it is the actual it's not this person who found it at random is now giving it to this other person who's just kind of happened upon Sabine who had it. Like this person who had it and won it and used it to unite it is now passing it on to the next person in leadership. Like it didn't feel like it completely undid everything for me, at least. Um, and you know, the we've had this idea that the crew of the ghost are kind of a—they are their own family. But kids gotta grow up as, as yeah, well. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, you could still apply that to um, to to Mandalorian. You know, Sabine is leaving her Mandalorian, was, and I think they've kind of highlighted the fact that despite her being very much a Mandalorian through her time and being away and being a part of the rebellion, she's kind of become more than just a Mandalorian. And I think she identifies more with, with the rebellion at this sorry, at this point. But what was her arc in season three? Her arc in season three was I've run away from everything about my family. I, I need now I need to go back for the good of the rebellion. I need to go back and make my past right. I need to face my past. I need to take this dark sea and, and be able to open up and learn how to use it so I can get so I can lead Mandalore into joining the rebellion, and which, but she accomplished that. Yeah, but the Mandalore place is is irrelevant for the re- for the rest of the series and the rest of the of Star Wars of Star Wars mythos going forward. That that was giving her character a real purpose, and then you just bring her back on the crew. She, where she's just like she's just there. It's like if Zeb went back and became the leader of the Lasats, and then a few episodes later, just kind of came back and was just Zeb again. Yeah, it, to me, I was always kind of curious about why they place so much importance on mandalorians considering like knowing the the original trilogy there's not even a whisper of them so i don't know how much they really could how much importance they ever could have been given considering you know we we know for a fact that they weren't involved in any major way in in the major battles in the in the war to begin with it just felt like this this episode wasn't dramatic wasn't dramatic storytelling but merely just course correction for something i'm not i'm not sure why they were course correcting i guess now i'm gonna get to maybe some of my own stronger complaints with these these episodes one i i forget his name but gar saxon's brother why what i I don't understand why everyone has to be really like well that that makes sense he's he's it's their their clans their 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 feudal society with clans so he, he he was the leader of the loyalist faction his brother's dead next in line rises up yeah so i get in terms of just the the logic of it makes sense it just it feels like the defeat of gar saxon had emotional weight um and it felt like his death was the climax of of this mandalorian story and then with this two-part episode kind of continuing that it's like oh wait we don't have our mandalorian villain anymore let's get gar saxon's brother and now because he kind of comes out of nowhere his death in what is i guess technically you know the the true finale to the entire mandalorian story within rebels it's like 
yeah, Gar Saxon's death was way more emotionally relevant and made a lot more sense, and I cared a lot more. This feels like crap. Let's give him a brother so he can have a like make sure a named villain dies to end this story. Huh. Okay. It just it it didn't feel like it meant anything. And it's just I I there were a lot of of things about the way these two part or these two episodes were wrapped up that I wasn't a big fan of, like the idea that all it takes to change the armor targeted and completely like turn the weapon against the enemy is like here let me hit a couple buttons <laughs> like it, it wasn't when you know whenever you you sell someone as like tech savvy it's like i'm waiting to see her like you know pull off the like the the plating of it and rework something but she's like beep boop boop all right we, we got it we're good yeah. to go and she could do that with three buttons but the the whole empire's technical staff could never figure out how to actually work the weapon exactly it's just it felt like it it just felt like you know this the entire tide had turned and like oh boom let me do this and yeah, that didn't work for me and then the um the moment where where sabine is like you know she's pretty much torturing him and she says she's not going to kill him and bo katan is saying you know this isn't our way it's theirs it's Bo-Katan's way. It's definitely Bo-Katan's way. It's like, wait, you're a Mandalorian. You're like the Spartans of Star Wars. You're like this warring faction that, that'll go to war just to go to war. Um, and so if if this were like a, a member of the Rebellion being like, no, we're going to fight our way as in, you know, because we kind of see that with Mon Mothma and Saw Gerrera in the next episode. That would make sense. But here it, it doesn't whenever it's mm-hmm. a Mandalorian saying to a Mandalorian, this is their way. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just think w- with me not really caring about the villain who's kind of like the, the big baddie of the, the final part of the Mandalorian story and the fact that you can turn like this horrible legacy that Sabine has left behind, you know, this weapon used against her people, that the entire fix was solved in, in like five seconds and then that, you know, her not falling into like the empire's way and staying the mandalorian way just all of that kind of together um the ending of this episode didn't really work for me yeah it's just this like they were going for a really triumphant uh mandalorian something and that it usually just kind of ends with a whimper and for, is quickly forgotten uh, so the next episode uh it's another two-parter uh in the name of the rebellion Part one was directed by Sergio Paez uh, and written by Gary Wooda. And part two was directed by Bosco and G and written by Matt Mishnovets. So having just arrived at the new rebel base on Yavin 4, the crew of the Ghost are sent to tap into the newly established Imperial Communications Relay used to more quickly respond to rebel incursions. Ezra, dissatisfied with the lack of action in retaking Lothal, or attacks or or lack of attacks on the empire reluctantly leads the ground mission along with Sabine when the mission is compromised Ezra and Sabine with the help of the newly arrived Saw Gerrera opt instead to destroy the relays now on board with Saw and unable to get back to the ghost they make the jump to light speed where Saw requests their help on investigating a civilian ship he believed was carrying supplies to whatever it was the empire was building once aboard, it's discovered to be manned by Imperials and storing both imprisoned technicians as well as a giant kyber crystal. The group decides they must keep it from Imperial hands, but Ezra and Sabine are betrayed by Saw, who stuns them and maintains course to find out where it was going. 
Upon arrival, they find nothing but a singular Star Destroyer waiting for them. Saw invites them to escape with him, but they decline, insisting they have to save the technicians. Saw lets them go, but immediately damage, uh, damages the generators, keeping the kyber crystal stable, and it begins to overload. Able to escape an Imperial shuttle, Ezra, Sabine, Chopper, along with the technicians, uh, take the shuttle and use the Star Destroyer as a shield from the blast of the crystal. Back on Yavin, Kanan grows concerned the Empire is already on the verge of winning the war. So... What I really got from this episode is Callus looks super sexy now with his new haircut. It's it's crazy how well he looks like in in the original trilogy setting, like the hair, the beard, the vest. I'm like this this guy he he fits in with the rebellion. Um, yeah, I I love the new design for him. Yeah, I like the conflict we get in this episode, but well, even even just right at the opening, of the first one, um, where we have saw. Basically sending a droid with a message in just to taunt uh, Mon Mothma and the rebels about how useless their tactics are and how he's how his brutality is far superior. Then we get a really great argument between him and Mon Mothma where she just gets super emotional and just unloads on him about, you know, just how evil he is and the fact that, you know, he stoops basically to the Empire's tactics and is willing to kill innocents and civilians for his for his um for his own ends it's a really cool confrontation yeah the acting there is really good too you know the entire time uh mothma is trying to be the more calm one the more reserved one while he's just kind of agging her on and the second she actually you know you said she she becomes very emotional and she argues and she gives this this speech and it's like she she does what he wants like he has that line where he says uh there it is there's the passion where is this passion before um the whole scene it really is a like a i i would have preferred this having been like the um the finale over um or not the finale the um the first the debut i guess the uh premiere mm-hmm. because i think it it finds the uh the rebellion in a much more interesting place than just kind of like tying up the mandalore stuff as as your premiere um you know, considering where we, we kind of left Saw, not as a, a loose thread, but just as this character, we didn't really know what his affiliation with the Rebellion is after all that. And so to, to start it off this way, I, I thought, you know, I, I thought it was just a stronger opening. One thing that did strike me as a little weird is that Ezra is now kind of getting into the Saw fan club when it was Ezra back in uh, Ghost of Genosis who was kind of the leader of the anti-Saw Guerrero faction. <laughs> Again, it just feels like they're kind of really waffling on these characters just to create conflict. Like, he was the one who saw through Saw and saw who, who was so brutal, and he didn't actually care about, you know, those he was fighting for. And now we see again, and he's clearly demonstrated that Saw doesn't, still could not care less. And for the first half, he still seems kind of infatuated with him. It's just... It just did... It, it, it felt like kind of... It felt really contrived. Yeah, I remember my complaints in... Uh in season three is just you know how often do we keep seeing the lesson of ezra kind of looking up to somebody or trusting somebody he shouldn't you know we've been through it with uh hondo multiple times we went through it with maul and we're going through it with Saul. it just seems like we're we're beating a dead horse so they go on this pretty awesome halo jump onto the dish uh and it, it's fun to see brom titus and i was kind of sad to see him go i he was he was a fun recurring character and i, I love the reveal though <laughs> where you know he we hear him say you know this is brom titus blah 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 and, 
<laughs> uh, we hear over the other side, this is Bromtitis. But then the assault comes in and blows it all up, and they're stuck on a ship, and they go to investigate this uh, Imperial shipment from Jeddah. I wonder what that could be. Uh, this is the one earlier on, in a couple episodes back, where we were saying that they, uh, there was a Rebels arc that, um, that kind of, I, I think, took elements from the Crystal Crisis on Utapau. Uh, where now they're, they're hunting down this giant kyber crystal. And I like it as they, they, when they get there, they don't even know what it is. And Ezra can hear the singing through the forest, and the, he's leading them through the uh, through the ship till they finally find it, this giant green crystal. Um, and of course, Saw, being Saw, is a total jerk and wants to kill everybody basically all the time. As as a as a human, he's awful. But as a character, I like that you know in in the uh, in season three and his appearances there. You know, he kind of ended me like, you're right, you know, this this Gen Ocean deserves the same shot we do. And you're like, whoa, that's that's not really the saw that we know in Rogue One. And so I was kind of glad to see whenever he, he offered them the chance to escape and they're like, well, we got to save the prisoners. And he's like, no, and he just leaves. I'm like, okay, that's the saw from Rogue One. So it, it's nice to see that they're setting him up here and they're not like intentionally softening him up for the sake of a, of a Disney XD show. So, yeah, I hate him, but I, I like the consistency in character. Did you see the alien dude that's with him in Rogue One? The pilot? Yes, that made me so happy. And I think one of my favorite things, you know, I, I think the last episode was fun enough. I, you know, we didn't really talk about it. You, you have that super cool chase through the fog with Hera and Kanan where he's using the force to help guide her. Um, but I like this episode uh, really, really well, actually, and... By the time this one ended, I was very much ready to put in Rogue One with with Saw and his alien friend, as well as, you know, mentions of Jeddah. And we get to see, like, this is the, I guess, chronological introduction of the Death Troopers now. Mm-hmm. Not terribly impressive. Well, in design, they're pretty awesome. Yeah. And you like the voice scrambler and everything. So I just thought it was it was cool to start seeing. And then, you know, obviously we hear them mention Krennic. So I, I just, I had a lot of fun, if anything, just with all the... All the nods that were here. And I like how paranoid uh, Saw is. He's been going on the investigate. He knows the Empire is up to something. He just doesn't know what it is. And he's try- desperately trying to track it down. He's just kind of really eating at him. And then you realize he actually, that's what killed him in the end was this thing he was hunting. Yeah, it was weird. So part of me was wondering, like, why, why are they so fixated on, like, having Saw be involved with with any episode kind of revolving around the death star um and then i remembered wait a second you know he dies on jetta he's technically among the first casualties of the death star so i was like oh that is kind of ironic now you know um and so watching them in order is going to be a lot more interesting now yeah um and so they the ghost comes in and picks up all the prisoners in them and they fly away just as the uh kyber crystal glow uh, blows in a very spectacular explosion and i love how um the ghost flies behind the approaching death star to catch the explosion yeah that was really cool. and, I, and i love whenever they first get there to rescue them and they're like they're always blowing something up like that you know <laughs> despite the fact that yeah they're kind of reverting sabine back to the explosions chick it is funny that you know they they leave the ghost in this big explosion with the satellite and the second they see him again, they find them with this huge <laughs> explosion of a Death Star. Sabine Wren was here. It's just kind of a, a fun running joke almost. And Blaine's back. Welcome back. To- yeah, it's been so long. It has indeed. 
So the next episode is The Occupation. This is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Christopher Yost. Uh, so Ryder Azadi informs the Rebels that the Empire is testing the new TIE Defenders. The Rebels can't spare any aid, so the Ghost Crew decides to go back uh, to Lothal this time for good. Visago smuggles them back to Lothal, which has been decimated by uh, Imperial mining and industry. They sneak through the streets of uh, Capital City and run into Jai Kel, who then leads them to Ryder after several misadventures with stormtroopers on the way. So uh, the first big thing about this episode is that we come back to Lothal and it is kind of a wreck. You like the clouds have all turned yellow and it's just, you know, smog and industrial fumes. And this is something that since I've been reading the uh, new canon books has come up a lot. And basically every book talks about just how destructive Imperial mining was um, on all these cultures. And it, it didn't, it didn't really hit me all that hard the first time, but now having gone back and read all these books coming into it now with that new perspective, it, it really means a lot more. Yeah, to me, it was, you know, I, I think in every subsequent episode we talked about after season one, one of the things that kept coming back up was that they really improved on on a sense of stakes and urgency. Um, and, you know, we've we'd spent the past several episodes talking about going to Lothal. You know, the season finale beforehand was about going to Lothal and bringing the fight there. And and so I had always imagined, you know, this triumphant return, we're going to liberate the city and getting there and seeing it, you know, just become the wasteland that it was. Um, it's kind of shocking, especially considering we spent such a lighthearted first season there, seeing what they, you know, as as creatives like allow themselves to do there um, was definitely unexpected for me. Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of jarring to finally get get to go back to Lothal after all of this, and like you said, just see it completely, completely decimated. And we, you know, read about this stuff like you said, Gabe, and and like every single Star Wars book, just about. Uh, but get, to get to see it in this place that we've you know spent four years with at this point um, is pretty devastating. But then there's also some. And there's some shocking stuff along with that. Like, we get to meet old characters. You mentioned Visago. I think this is the episode where they go and they go to uh, Old Joe's, although it's, you know, no mm -hmm. longer being run by Joe. Um, so just a, a lot has changed. Uh, it's kind of uncanny to, to be back on Lothal like this and it feel familiar but very, very different. The, the tone of this episode feels a lot to me like those old World War One, World War Two movies where they would go like underground with the French Resistance and... Just it's all about sneaking around the streets, and the German patrols are everywhere. It's just that it's, it has that really oppressive tone. Just anywhere you turn, there's like some kind of symbol of the empire. Yeah, I think part of what helped this like work so much for me because initially, you know, I like season one okay, but I just thought the way seasons two and three just broadened the scope, and you know, I mean, seeing the creation of the Rebe uh, the Rebel Alliance was amazing. Uh, going back to Lothal, it's like man, we're really, you know, we're scaling down for the big you know the last final season um but i think because of how different it looked and because of how you know we thought the occupation was was heavy in season two because of how oppressive it was you know seeing what had become of old joe's seeing just the fields and the plains surrounding ezra's old tower uh the tactic you know you can no longer just kind of stroll into the capital city um you are having to like work in this underground sort of way because of of how tight the grip around it was. I was, from that episode, I was really more on board with staying here because despite the fact that we're on the same location, just everything about how we interact with this place and these environments and even the way they looked, it, it had all changed. So, 
you're you're seeing the same planet but in an entirely different kind of light yeah i love that you're you get to see some like propaganda art that's not only in old joe's but just hanging throughout the streets and stuff like that um it like you said it does give a sort of like wartime occupation feel um and yeah it's some great design work there so i got a question for you guys how like you briefly mentioned it james but how do you feel about their choice to leave the rebellion and only focus on lothal and what what seems to be kind of a losing battle for some reason it didn't really sit well with me. It, it it felt like i was going back to uh like champs and doula where or the mandalorians where it's like we're only going to focus on this one place even if it's not strategically the best place or if it's even if it doesn't help the rest of the uh, galaxy it's all about just lothal lothal's our home so we have to fight for this place it just it just felt odd after they've gone and shown us kind of the negative portrayals of people who only focus on their home world and kind of ignore the rest of the galaxy for then our crew to kind of do the same thing. Did that, did that strike you guys as weird? I think one of the differences between here and, and the, the story with Champs and is, you know, he was, he was wanting to go to extreme lengths for his home at, at the cost of other places. Um, and you might be able to say, you know, like, well, you know, them focusing on Lothal did come at the cost of, um, you know, of, of their assistance that may have, you know, that may have been there for the rebellion and the, the bigger picture. Um, but one, I, I think that it separates them, you know, from the rest of the galaxy where it's in a way they did pretty much, you know, promise the citizens of Lothal a sense of liberation. And you can say, you know, well, the liberation will come in the the ultimate defeat of the empire, but uh, he, I I was kind of okay with the idea of this rebel cell belongs to Lothal. We did our part. We were off on our two year journey. We helped form the alliance. It's time to get back to where we came from. And then I think that you have just uh, a further explanation for why they're there with with Kanan talking about the fact that they're drawn there, you know, Hera says, well, obviously we keep coming back here. You know, Ezra's from here, you know, we started here, but he was like, before all of that, we were always going here. And so I think it, you could almost chalk it up to the, the force influencing the actions, you know, through whether he's directly um, influencing the decisions of the people or just orchestrating events. The force is somehow ensuring that, as Kanan said, all paths lead there. Uh, so to me, it just felt like this was this was the force setting things in motion to ensure that they were there. Oh, Maxi, big the force. <laughs> uh, no, that's really good. I do think it's. I agree with you, James. But I also think it's kind of jarring um, to come back to Lothal all of a sudden, especially after these first couple of or first first what four episodes in the season up to this point where we're on Mandalore and then we're doing stuff with Sagarera again. Um, and then all of a sudden we're back on Lothal and I'm not sure how, how I feel about how that f flows entirely. Um, it's a bit jarring. I think once we settle in on Lothal, um, I really get into it and I'm, I'm fully invested, but yeah, just this first episode is, it's a bit of whiplash. I think maybe part of it, maybe just, that I never really got connected with Lothal. It was always just, grass and cats which you know it's fine <laughs> but it's a lot of grass and <laughs> i never i don't know that i ever got ezra's connection with it which will probably come in later so the next episode is flight of the defenders 
So while on a reconnaissance mission to gather intel on the new TIE Defender, Sabine convinces the group that they should take this opportunity to steal the data recorder on the Defender while they're there. Sabine sneaks aboard the Defender, but just then, Thrawn and Governor Price arrive and head to the Defender to inspect it. Ezra is distracted by the appearance of a loath wolf and is discovered by a stormtrooper, but he uses this as a distraction to give Sabine more time. Sabine is eventually able to get the Defender in the air and rescues Ezra, where they then destroy most of the TIE Fighters on the base. After taking out additional TIE Fighters, uh, Price, or pursuing them, Price remotely shuts down the Defender, causing Ezra and Sabine to crash. Ezra and Sabine salvage the hyperdrive from the TIE Fighter to help in getting off of Lethal, or, but it's too heavy, so they hide it in a rock formation to come back later. Just then, they are surprised by a loath wolf that puts Sabine to sleep instantly. The wolf takes him back to the rest of the rebels, then disappears. When Sabine wakes up, she has no recollection of the wolf, but Kanan believes Ezra, telling him that all paths have led to this. Yeah, we get, here we get to see a bit of a the Defender action. This is a very scary ship. Mm-hmm. Like, the couple times we've seen him previously where it just takes out the entire squadron. Like, this... I kind of wish almost the, the, the season was about this. Like, the, we have to come to Lothal because this is where the TIE Defenders are. Because, you know, th- these are a very credible threat and I could eat one that could easily take out the um, the Resistance. But I also, I also really love the sequence a- after they're discovered and Ezra's just running through the camp. He keeps just, like, jumping over and tripping on all these crates, just constantly trying to deflect, like, leaping over the stormtroopers. It's really fun sequence where he's just running in circles and just barely staying out of the way keeps tripping and Thrawn's just like huh fascinating (laughs) just watching it's really it's like funny but also super intense yeah I think part of why I really like that sequence is because uh part of my issue with with some of the action in the series beforehand is everything is almost sometimes too elegant like you can just kind of jump over anything and, and land perfectly because it's a cartoon and and uh, people are leaping across walls. Even people without the force are leaping across walls. And it, it doesn't really feel like the physics of this world uh, make any sort of sense. But here, it felt like, you know, we were watching a scene play out the way it would if that was like an actual person in a live action setting. Like he's scrambling over boxes. Every time he peeks out, you know, uh, a laser flies over his head. He's tripping over himself. It really feels like there's a sense of threat instead of just, you know, like like the Sabine... Uh, short where you know she's just pretty much dancing all over the place spray painting <laughs> um here it actually feels like they're interacting with the environments in a real way and like in a, a realistic kind of action sequence i was just gonna say yeah I, I love all of this to do with the tide defender and especially since the series the um, series has ended and more thrawn or another thrawn novel by timothy zahn uh, has come out um we we learned a lot more about this tide defender program which is just really interesting stuff and we see that the the tie defender is basically like thrawn's thrawn's way to gain a political like foothold because he is of course a great military tactician but he is no politician and so this is sort of his way in um and he's of course competing with other projects and bigger projects that are that are going on at this point in time and so he's got a lot invested here besides just stopping this rebel cell yeah, but also as a tactician, he thinks like the Death Star is just like tactically stupid. Yeah. So he he's trying to present the Emperor with an alternative. Like that, that's, that's a conflict the, the show here doesn't go too much into. We do like, hear little bits where Tarkin is talking about, you know, he uh, has to compete with uh, Krennic's project Stardust, and I just I love it adds this whole level of realism to the um to this universe 
that you have these like these various military commanders each trying to vying for the emperor's approval with their pet projects yeah and i believe this is the introduction of the loath wolves which just did they just put loath in front of everything on Lothal? <laughs> it's just <laughs> what i was thinking yeah so uh, these are these are strange and it, they only get stranger like in this episode they i guess teleport them across the planet like they have a really weird relationship with space and time and everything um so yeah i guess they they are these force sensitive wolves that may or may not actually be physical i'm still iffy on like there are some scenes where i love them other scenes where i'm just like i don't know what you are go away i don't need you in my star wars (laughs) what do you what are you guys thoughts on the little wolves yeah, I'm a big fan of the Loth Wolves. I love when Star Wars leads and leans into its fantasy roots and stuff like that. And yeah, I still don't know what to think about the Loth Wolves and how they work and how they function and stuff like that. But I normally, me personally, I don't usually go to great lengths to try to figure out exactly how certain things fit into a certain mythology here. And that'll come up. That'll definitely come up. <laughs> <laughs> again later on this season um but i love the element of mystery they they bring into the show i remember watching it for the first time i i got through this episode and i was like okay what the heck just happened <laughs> and what does this mean yeah so i i'm a, a pretty big fan as well um just first first of all just in terms of design i think they look awesome with their chicken feet and all that <laughs> yeah it's it's such a, an interesting design uh, but to me, it looks really striking, and it's a way like it's a way to make them look more than just you know we took a regular wolf and made him bigger, like you know you, that kind of fleshy bits on on the their foreheads and and then yet yeah, the, their their chicken like feet, um, but just the way they do like the way they're so bulky and like feel like they're just lumbering over over anyone around. Uh, but then, you know when you say you know I I don't understand what you are. I'm kind of okay with that, you know, because I don't understand who the Bendu is, but I love him, and I I'm okay, especially through through the shows. I'm becoming more and more okay with the idea of there are creatures out here that we really don't understand who have varying connections with the Force. Some of them are um, like sentient. And intelligent, like the the creatures from the, the um, they're they're like the Gungan-like creatures from the Clone Wars, and sometimes they're animals like this, um, and and I like the fact that we we don't we're intentionally withheld from like with information, um, you know they say are they on our side, and Ezra says I think they're on Lothal's side, and so there's just the force moves through them in some sort of odd way to try to maintain peace and order on Lothal. And all we really are supposed to ever know about them is they're some sort of instrument for the will of the force on the planet. I guess for me, it's something like the, the blending of the lines with like sentient. It gets really strange, like with the, with the, the loath wolves and then with the purgles, like are these creatures actually aware? Or are they just, like is Ezra just controlling them or is the force just controlling them it just I don't know for, for, for me when you start blurring the line of of alien or you know alien or human or animal it just gets it just gets really confusing and it doesn't uh, for some reason it doesn't strike it doesn't really work for me as drama when 
I don't even know what I'm looking at. Like, if, am I supposed to feel for you? Or are you actually are you just animals? Are you actually, do you know what's going on? I think it's kind of compounded by the fact that there are two different species in this season that are like that. So I, I, I was more okay with the fact, I mean, I, I bought into the fact that, you know, while they may not be able to communicate, they definitely are, are aware of the situation and they understand what's going on. And as, as far as, you know, them having their own like mind and, and ability to discern what's going on, to me, I think the force makes that a lot more palatable, like a, a lot easier to, to digest as a, a fan of the lore where it's, if they are an instrument of the force, then any, any sort of identity they have is given through the force. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's too out of the ordinary for what both series have kind of told us about it. Any thoughts on that, Blaine? No, not fully formed. I'm enjoying this because Josh and I are usually like hive mind, um, completely <laughs> unified just, just by mere circumstance or will of the force or whatever. Um, so I'm enjoying the, I'm enjoying the back and forth. James and I usually are as well, except this, this episode is going to be an exception. <laughs> It'll be fun. I'm glad to be along for the ride then. Um, so yeah, and then one last thing, there's a very cryptic, um, message where when Ezra asked the wolf, you know, why are you helping us? He just says, doom, which uh, we'll come back later. Um, next episode is Kindred. It's directed by Sergio Perez, uh, written by Dave Filoni and Henry Gilroy. Uh, the ghost crew returns to uh, find the, where the hyperdrive is hidden uh, to carry it back and use it so the hero can, u- can use a rider ship to get back to the Alliance with the data recorder that they stole from the TIE Defender. Uh, but Thrawn sends assassin Rook to hunt them down. They get the hyperdrive and Hera escapes, but the rest of them are trapped. Uh, but Loth Wolves show up and Ezra decides to follow them. They are led uh, by the Loth Wolves through the caves and then wake up on the other side of the planet. If I'm not mistaken, Rook was one of Thrawn's bodyguards in the original Thrawn tri- trilogy? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And actually ended up trying to kill Thrawn. Yeah, like what's the what's the species called? Um, oh goodness gracious. Um, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so the, this he's a character that is carried over from the um. No from agree. The, uh, he's he's a no agree. Not no agree. Um, yeah, so he was carried over from the original Thrawn children. I remember, there's a lot of excitement uh, surrounding him, and also another reason to be excited is that he is voiced by Warwick Davis, who has been in every Star Wars film and many many other awesome things. And I, I like his voice. Very, uh, very creepy and unnerving as well as I like how Ezra describes him. So, you know how one problem usually leads to another? Well, we have another one. It's small, creepy, and very dangerous. <laughs> and yeah, he's just a very, he has like these really gray, white, milky eyes and has this really deep, rumbly voice and just seems to enjoy hurting. Mm-hmm. So a very, um, very uh, cool intag- or secondary antagonist for this show. Yeah, I was really pleased with the way they handled him. Again, I was excited because of you know being familiar with him through Legends, but I feel like he was handled very well in this series. I appreciate the design that he goes from being this sort of awkward um, and vaguely menacing bipedal creature to going down on all fours and becoming very mm-hmm. animal-like um, and vicious um stealthy and all of that stuff and then he runs like a chimpanzee very weird (laughs) yeah yeah um and then they kept this idea that he has a very keen sense of smell smell that was a holdover from from legends um and it seems like it's toned down maybe a little bit at least from what we know in the series 
But um, I don't know. He he smelled them when they were way up on the cliff back in in, uh, in the Doom episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember in Legends, he could even like tell something about your bloodline and your family and stuff like that. From like his sense of smell was so keen. Um, but yeah, I, I love that that was a holdover, and it makes sense with the way they're sort of making him a bit more animalistic and everything. And the fight scenes that he's a part of really do feel like there there is um, there's something at stake, especially later on in the series. Yeah, I thought it was impressive, like how dangerous and and scary they were able to make him seem whenever you know we're first introduced to him and he's you know like half the size of everyone around him um but the second you know he's got a target all of a sudden he goes from like oh really that guy to oh no it's it's that guy we, we should leave um so yeah just this very weird creepy feral almost way of fighting mixed with that low gravel uh gravelly kind of voice you know, it, to me, it's it's it'd be really hard to in the final season introduce a character who really has no emotional connection to the plot or, or characters or really anything going on here but to be able to introduce him and still make him feel um, relevant and threatening and, uh, and and a character that we actually enjoy watching interact with like everyone else. We get a, a bit of drama between Hera and Kanan where Hera, I mean, Kanan seems kind of upset that Hera is so focused on the rebellion like she wants to go and take the data recorder back to the rebellion so they'll, you know they'll have information on the tie defender and I don't know it's like he's kind of like a jealous boyfriend just kind of like why are you getting all your attention which, which just seems strange from the the fact that he's been part of this rebellion for so long to all of a sudden like you're bringing this up now I don't know it just felt weird yeah, I don't know if part of that is that in some, like, he senses to a certain extent that things are coming to an end. Because um, mm. he keeps trying to make these attempts. He does that, uh, I think it's in The Occupation, where they have their moment that Zeb interrupts in the in the corridor or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, like, just trying to get a few minutes to, to, to be alone with her um, in these final days. Yeah, I, you know, it's not revealed to him yet what his fate is. But I think, you know, even with his comments to Ezra about... Something is happening. The force is leading us here. Um, it feels, you know, the way he's, it, it almost feels like a sense of desperation in it, you know, where he is fighting for any moment. It, and at first, I think part of the reason it was jarring for me is it felt like there was always this kind of unspoken understanding with like the audience that there are a couple, you know, this is just, you know, we're not going to really spend too much time on it, but you know, you know that. And then to see that come up and kind of have uncertainty around it. Um, that's what kind of threw me off. But as far as it just now coming up in, in him really talking to her about it, it did kind of feel like this is a guy who has a feeling something might change and he's taking whatever opportunities he have. He, he has now that he might not have taken beforehand, you know, when he can. Um, and as someone who really likes both of these characters, I was cool with them. I was like, it's about time. You know, this is actually a relationship I, as a viewer, could see myself getting invested in. So I'm, I'm glad that they're, you know, now in this final season, putting putting time into it. So towards the end, we get another incredibly trippy sequence where they follow the Lothwolves into the caves and then they're walking and then it, then it kind of switches to like the visual of the a hyper, like a hyperspace uh, when you're going through hyperspace, all the kind of the, the blue. And then he's like, 
Then he wakes up and he's laying in grass. And then he wakes up again. And he's laying on in a cave. It's very strange. Obviously, at the end, they realize they they're actually on the other side of the planet. So basically, the again with the uh, the loath wolves, they I'm assuming <laughs> teleported them or something across the planet, but also put them in this weird trance. Uh, it's just a really trippy sequence. Yeah, I I saw the the like the hyperspace visuals. And, uh, you know, we may not be a fan of them, but, but the Purgles have sent have set a precedent for <laughs> creatures traveling through okay. light speed. And so to me, I, th- I think the like the blue swirling imagery that's just been a constant throughout the series. I think that was meant to indicate that that they are in some sort of weird way traveling through light speed. And that's how they're, they're getting mm. to the other side of the planet so quickly. Well, in that case, I hate it. Oh, <laughs> It's cool in this case. <laughs> Not like the Purgles are dumb, but this is cool. <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot of other things that I liked a lot about this episode, though, as well. Um, I love, you know, as someone who really does like the Loth Wolves, I love the way that they're setting up the intrigue and mystery around what's happening on Lothal. You know, it's we've had hints before about there's there's got to be some big reason why the Empire's here and. And, you know, I, I think we're really not meant to think, you know, at this point, like, is it the Defenders and, like, the Factory? But, I, you know, I don't think it's that. There's got to be something else. And then we're seeing them and just the way it kind of, like, goes back into the cave uh, after it takes them through that light speed path and it just kind of disappears into it. Um, there's a there's a level of intrigue that, that kind of starts, well, really it starts on the previous episode and it just... It travels all the way up until the episode um, "A World Between Worlds." That it it made me feel like I did watching the Last Jedi. Where I'm like, I'm not used to this sense of of mystery and uncertainty in Star Wars. Uh, and I just thought it was really fascinating and cool to be able to experience that again. Yeah, I agree with you there. I feel like it was it was doled out um, just enough piece by piece um, to really keep us wondering. And yeah, it's the it's the first time in a while that I had just felt really, really, really super anxious to get the next episode and just get a little bit more and figure out what was going on. Okay. And uh, on the space side, there's a really cool chase where that ends with uh, Hera going into hyperspace while flying through the hangar of a, like a transport and just sucking all the spiders and cargo out the other side. Just a really cool visual. Kind of a feels like a um, natural predecessor to the Holden maneuver. That's what I was thinking too. You know, we have precedent for for light speed interacting with uh, with the objects around him. With with that visual alone, and and Han's warning about crashing of you know going through a an asteroid. I'm like, okay, I I buy it. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, one thing I forgot is that uh, they find cave drawings, and Ezra tells them about hearing the name Doom, and we find out that Kanan's uh, real name is Caleb Doom, and that. He changed it uh, back when uh, the Jedi Order fell to go into hiding. That's where he changed it to uh, Kanan Jarrus. You know, I'm just actually I'm going to bring up this complaint now. I, d- I don't understand. Why is Kanan the one with the connection to Lothal? Like, he's, he was born on Coruscant, and he didn't come to Lothal until, I, I, I'm assuming, probably his late 20s. Um, But somehow, he is the one that the loath wolves are coming to and spoiling you later on the ep- in the season he doesn't actually do anything on lothal it's ezra is the one who goes and finishes the work you know he uh, 
Kanan says here, you know, I've, I get the feeling the TIE Defender isn't the worst thing the Empire is doing here on Lothal. And we find out it's not. We, when we go to the, you know, the Jedi Temple on the world between the uh, world between worlds, that's all Ezra that does that. Like, why is Kanan the one that they're making the connection with? I think that's because they are using Kanan to use Ezra. Um, and not use in like a, a you know, the kind of like, oh, we're going to use him to accomplish our deeds. Um, but, you know, because I, I, did y'all take it as that, that last wolf at the end was that Kanan? Especially considering whenever he looks back at the wolf one last time and it leaves, it felt like that was intended, like that was, that was Ezra kind of saying goodbye to Kanan. He was grumpy enough to be Kanan. <laughs> and so that, that's why I think they they brought Kanan into their pack so that they they're not just this random pack of creepy force wolves that Ezra's you know doing the bidding of once once Kanan has a presence within there they're no longer scary to Ezra you know if well, if Kanan is there Kanan is the one that does most of the scaring actually <laughs> or the yeah, doom but- wolf yeah, and in a weird way, that whenever he like growls on and he's scaring, it almost kind of reminded me of of how rough he was with Sabine in their training, <laughs> kind of like throwing her down and intentionally like roughing her up uh, to elicit a, a response from her. And so I, I think you know with the connection, it's not all just this wolf is scary and it's kind of it seems threatening, especially within Star Wars. Whenever there's you know, two force users interacting with each other, even in the case of one being a, a newly created force wolf, I think there's a sense, even if you don't, even if it's just kind of like in the back of your mind, you know, subconsciously, I think if that's Kanan, there is going to be some sort of connection. Even if Ezra can't put words to it, there's something about this that otherwise this wolf is so terrifying, I'm out of here. And even though he kind of seemed that way, he never left and he was always kind of there and he always argued with it and and seemed to be more willing to do the will. And so I think that would be because in some way or other, he could feel some sort of connection through the force with, with this wolf and with what these wolves together are trying to accomplish. And I think that that connection may not have been there had Kanan not been part of him. Well, why not just skip this step and start saying Ezra's name? That would get his attention. Yeah, it'd freak him out and he'd be like, screw Lothal, we're out of here. I don't know. Ezra's weird with animals. He likes animals. He'd be good. Yeah, so Crawler Commandeers. Uh, this one is directed by Bosco NG and written by Matt Mishnovets. Um, still unable to contact Rebel Command, Ezra, Zeb, Kanan, and Sabine discover a nearby crawler with a long-range communications array stripping the planet from materials. They manage to subdue the Trandoshan captain, Sivor, but learn that the Imperials are being sent for an inspection. Sabine discovers through an intercom that there are still people aboard the back end of the crawler and Zeb and Kanan go to investigate, where they discover Visago with other prisoners and a Trandoshan slave master. Zeb bests the Trandoshan and throws him overboard, and he, along with Kanan and Visago, return to the bridge. The Imperials then arrive, but the rebels are able to convince them that everything is normal, with Zeb um, in disguise as the previous Trandoshan. Uh, after the successful inspection, the stormtroopers leave, but it is discovered that the captain, Sivo, has escaped the closet he was locked in, and Ezra searches for him in the engine room where, after a brief fight, Sivor falls into an incinerator. The rebels are then able to make contact with Hera, who informs them that there will be a strike on the Imperial factory on Lothal. 
Uh, when do you guys want to start? I can. I mean, I'm usually so positive about Star <laughs> Wars. I really didn't like this this episode <laughs> at all. Aside from the uh, the fun bit of getting Seth Green back in Star Wars, I um, yeah, I, I I don't know. There was something about this episode that just it felt very season one to me in many ways. Um, I understand some of the like world building it's doing and and setting us up for things that happen later on, but yeah, not my favorite. I will say it is kind of filler. It's all like all just to get a radio, which you know you could have written that they already had a radio. You know, it's it's not really necessary plot, and, and for a season that th- this contained and focused as it as it is for the most part, he does as you said, it does feel kind of season one, and it also it's its tone is a lot goofier and lighter, despite the slavery and people getting incinerated and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm glad y'all think that way. Cause this, this was not an episode I particularly enjoyed either. And even more, so, maybe if this were season one, I'd be like, Oh, you know, this is just, I, I, I'm kind of into this. Cause I, I enjoyed my time in season one during the moment. And had this just kind of been another one of those episodes, I would have enjoyed it. But you know, after everything going on with the Loth wolves and, and the wolf speaking and what you know what is going on there's so much intrigue there's so much mystery we're halfway across the planet and we're gonna we're gonna have to find out how to get back over there you know what's gonna happen and i remember you know just a few minutes in the episode whenever they they get onto the crawler i'm like we're we're gonna be here the whole episode like i i know the objective the episode is completely up front within the first five minutes about everything that has to accomplish in this episode like we know it's almost kind of spelling out what what we're going to see ahead of time and for the sake of being a completionist <laughs> and the fact that i have to you know talk about it on a podcast i sat and watched it was like i i i'm really not invested at all and like you said the tone is just so disconnected from from everything before and definitely from what we're you know this next episode that we're about to have it just feels really unnecessary and yet in a season that's shortened you know, I don't, I don't see why filler like this was, was necessary, and uh, and yet some of the some of the jokes <laughs> don't land within the context of season four. And I don't even know if they would have landed <laughs> in season one. Like, I know when Ezra is mimicking the Trandoshan voice, we've got these like bells and and drums in the back. Like, it sounds <laughs> the the music sounds like I'm watching like a Hallmark movie or something. It's <laughs> is that what I sound like? <laughs> and I was also a bit disappointed with the. The portrayal, maybe not of the the bigger slave master, but but even just the designs here felt, and obviously partly because Rebels is just a bit more cartoony um, and just curved and softer. Um, but man, the Trandoshans felt terrifying in the season three finale of the Clone Wars. That they were just a force to be reckoned with, and that was one of the first times, other than maybe like Brain Invaders, where I truly felt like Ahsoka was in danger. And here they're mostly played for laughs. And I was like, man, they had done them so right before. You know, I didn't even realize that Seavor was a Trandoshan until I saw the guard in the in the uh, <laughs> the cargo hold. Like he's an actual Trandoshan. Like I, I'm not even convinced that he's not like some other species cousin to the Trandoshan. He, he doesn't act like one or look like one at all. Right. Yeah. I don't, to, to me, it's just like like you said, when you're ending a season intentionally or a series intentionally. And you've got a shorter season on top of that. Um, you kind of expect at some point this to all be really focused, especially in like the heart of the, you know, coming up on the middle of the of the season. Um, so it, it did. It just felt 
it just felt strange. And I suppose mm. maybe you need you could argue that you need a bit of levity to to break up what has come before and what's coming, but it just yeah, it just totally it doesn't jive with with the rest of the season in my opinion. Another question, did Ezra intentionally move the lightsaber for uh, Seymour to step on and fall into the furnace? Like there's a close up on the lightsaber, then a close up on his face looking at it very intently, then Seymour steps and you know, trips on it and falls back into the uh into the furnace. Were they? Was he supposed to? I don't know. I didn't like Seavor anyway. So even if it was intentional, good on you. I say. Perfect answer. Um, and of course, they they uh, they save um, Visago, but who is very offended that they didn't actually come there on purpose to save him? Um, next episode is Rebel Assault. This is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Dave Filoni and Stephen Melching. Hera, having convinced uh, Rebel High Command to authorize a bombing strike on the. TIE Defender Factory in Lethal leads it. Uh, meanwhile, on the ground, they sabotage Price's ground defenses. After a fierce battle with Thrawn's fleet, the rebels uh, break through and head towards the surface, but they are inter- intercepted and defeated by another wave of TIEs. Hera and Mart survive the crash and are hunted through the streets. Hera holds them off and Mart is able to escape. Kanan goes back to try and rescue Hera, but uh, but meets a loath wolf, and he returns to the, uh, the team with a new plan. So th- I like this one a lot. Just the huge space battle we get, which is shot very almost identically to the uh, battle in a new hope. Um, there's so many shots of the kind of where they kind of float and drift into flame or kind of bank, uh, bank together that just are almost like shot for shot kind of from a new, the, uh, the attack on the death star in a new hope. It really, it got me really nostalgic. Yeah. I feel like the show has handled these very big, like action sequences and space battles very well. A couple of times it's, it's done it especially the end of season three this sort of gave me sort of echoes of of that of that episode and so yeah i really enjoyed this one as well and getting to see getting to see Hera and then mart back again like a bit of reunion here with just smaller care minor characters m- making an appearance um getting to come back and and do great things so it's um nice callbacks to earlier seasons yeah, I didn't hate Mart as much as I did in Iron Squadron, so good on them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I like this a lot. I've I've always been impressed with how Filoni has been able to shoot, you know, these dog fights in the in the animated shows, uh, even with some of like you know the the ground stuff feeling a bit too cartoonish to uh, for me sometimes. Um, he's always nailed the the sense of speed and weight and physicalness of um of all of these different ships flying around and and just some of the maneuvers you had Herod pulling something that felt you know pretty similar to a uh, to Poe in the last Jedi and then whenever you had the you know the one ship kind of you know gutting through the neck of the the star destroyer it all felt tangible uh and dangerous and the way he moves the camera it really does feel like he's intentionally constraining himself to, to move it like it's it's an actual object um just kind of flying through this battlefield it, it looks so cool yeah and then after we we think we've won and then we see the ties coming then the next they kind of go to a commercial break and the next shot is just all of the uh, rebel ships falling in flames out of the sky it's a gorgeous shot but it's, it's super dark yeah and it it's crazy how how disheartening it feels and <laughs> it almost feels like you know, I, I think it's a, a good decision in, you know, directing and ed- editing the way they put it together. But it's 
you know, to have such a cool sequence where Hera's doing all this cool stuff and we're seeing the destruction and then to only, you know, like, oh, we, we've got additional TIE fighters coming in. And so Leo's hanging. It's like, how did it happen? How did it happen? Oh, there's the rubble. They lost. Like, it's such a, not a cruel way to, to tell us how it happened. But, you know, man, when, when we see that and I'm kind of waiting to hear the good news, like it somehow in some way it's intentional. But no, you know, Hera just went down along with everyone else. It's, it's a very dark image. And then once they're on the ground and they're being hunted, uh, Rook starts chasing him. And there's a pretty cool uh, fist fight between him and Hera, where Hera actually almost holds her own against him. I, re- I really like her fighting style. It was just very, very well choreographed scene. And then this is another kind of another development for the, the Loth Wolves. We get a lot of them in this season. Uh, when Kanan goes back to rescue Hera and he meets the Loth Wolves, the Loth Wolf, actually, I think this time, and... It seems that he's told pretty much exactly how the future is going to go. And again, I'm going to ask how you guys feel about this. Like previously, Star Wars has been very explicit, like forced premonitions and are not reliable. There's no reliable way to see the future. Always in motion, the future is. And like there's always, they're always telling us that you, you, you can't rely on these things, that the future can always be changed and relying too much on these things is what drove Anakin to the dark side. And, and they, they've done that even, even within the, um, the shows, both for uh, Ezra and Ahsoka, they would, they would have kind of times where Ahsoka would have to learn to kind of let go of these premonitions. So to ca- come in and have the Lothwolves basically tell a character exactly what's going to happen next episode. I don't know, it feels like a departure from kind of established force lore. So I I think I look at this differently. First, I I I do not look at what the the loath wolves do here, and and then what we eventually see in the world between worlds and the way you know the way everything is laid out and how how they're able to perceive the future. I look at this as as just very different, intentionally different from the premonitions we've had before. Uh, partially because I think they're just portrayed completely differently, and because it's a you know a cinematic medium, I think the way it's portrayed is is always intentional, um, and the way Ahsoka had them and even Ezra had them beforehand, you know the the closed eyes they're they're seeing them sometimes in their sleep, sometimes just kind of in the moment, and and they're it's brief you know a lot of times not always a full picture they those all felt very consistent. With you know Luke training on Dagobah, with Anakin's nightmares, but with the Loth Wolves, and with the World Between Worlds, these feel like it's a different way of perceiving the future. And I think that there has to be a level of of definiteness, if that's the word, that that comes with the way we're able to perceive the future here. Otherwise, the threat of the Empire being here is meaningless. Well, I I I don't think like the the World Between Worlds is nothing like. What the Loth Wolves are doing, like with the Loth Wolves, they just kind of stare into your eyes for a half second. They say, "I understand," and now you know the future. It's it's not like there are the where the the world between worlds is, is portals to the past and future. Well, one of the, so I mean, I think that they do have some sort of connection to the world between worlds, considering they themselves are are the gateway. You know, both literally in in terms of, or you know, figuratively and literally, in that. There, it's there. The circle of them on the painting that is the gate in the in the next episode, or not the next episode, but the 
you know, in the coming episodes. Um, so I think we're meant to see them as a, a literal and figurative gateway into whatever kind of force manifestation that world is. Um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that they are the portal there. Uh, and secondly, I don't know if we're really supposed to take that scene as Kanan getting a, a shot-for-shot visual of what happens. If that's the case, then when Hera says, hey, let's land on that fuel depot, Kanan would be like, eh, let's not. Well, he's pretty much accepted it. And it's the same thing with Ezra later on when he basically goes throughout the entire finale knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, but... I think that, you know, I, I think had Kanan seen that, it, it, you know, it's one thing to accept it if there's no other way. It's another thing to accept it if it's like, well, let's literally just land over here instead of there and we can accomplish the same effect, uh, except I get to live this time. I think it was more of some way or another. You don't don't go here expecting to live. I don't think he saw the physical scene I think he was just, and I think part of what was being conveyed was beyond just, hey, you're going to die. And I think that's maybe where it was communicated that you're going to die so that you can join us so that through all of us, we can help Ezra accomplish what he has to accomplish. I think he got it all there in some weird force mind melt kind of way where it wasn't just, this is what's about to happen, but, you know, it's get ready to die during this mission and join us in this effort. You know, more of that and less of, oh, you're going to land on this depot and you're going to, you know, you're going to get blown up. And I don't think we lose the always in motion the future is because I, I don't know if it's from the the guy who's introduced in the, the Wolf in the Door episode, um, who's kind of there examining it. But he, he says, you know, Kanan's death has changed the fate of Lothal. So Kanan... Kanan is part of the reason why the future is always in motion, you know, um, at least, you know, as it as it pertains to uh, Lothal. So I still think we get that sense of the, the future is never definite. And and sometimes what we do based on these visions changes what's going to happen. And so with all of that combined with the fact that I think there is something different from from the way the Loth, the Loth wolves perceive it and the way, you know, Anakin or Ahsoka might have before. I, I don't really see it as, as losing or contradicting anything we'd seen before. I don't know if, Blaine, if you feel any differently. You know, I, I just, I think that Kanan is is the catalyst for a lot of what happens because he is the one who finally is able to motivate Ezra into action and get things through Ezra's thick head. I mean, if we look at Ezra, he is perpetually immature in this season and in the entire series. I, I gotta push back on that. Okay. He's always been incredibly perceptive, too, like far too perceptive of force influence. Like he's the one who um who took the Sith holocron and was learning from it. Then then he's the one that Maul used to manipulate Obi Wan to coming out of hiding. Like Ezra's been the one who has who has been very open and you know possibly too open to the force. He's the one who encouraged everybody to trust the wolves and go after the wolves. Kanan seems to be the one who would have trouble. Believing what a wolf told him, Ezra. By all, by all we've seen, he's the one who has twice previously this been the one say, "Yes, these wolves are good. We should trust them. We should follow them. We should do whatever they want." I'm just not seeing the need for Kanan to get to tell him when Ezra's the one who's always till now been the one who's been 
like wide open to a fault to the force. Yeah, I think I mean I think Ezra is is like naive to a fault in many many cases in in the series and sometimes not to a fault. Sometimes he's willing to give people the benefit of the doubt when no one else is and it ends up helping them out like with with Hondo a couple of times. Sometimes that backfires too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Hondo never backfires. <laughs> so it's so it's hit or miss. But um it just seems like he there are so ma- there's so many times he learns this lesson yeah, a lesson um, and then he has to relearn it. And I knocked that a lot of times when I was watching the series initially and in some of our, our conversations on Home on Radio. And and I think it's intentional and I think it I think it's smart to a certain extent because I think Kanan or I think Ezra has to see Kanan die here. He has to see Kanan sacrifice himself in order for him to for it to finally hit home. Um for him in a way that it can't in any other way because 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 Kanan is basically his father um it, it's his family and and so I think that's why the wolves are are drawing or are, are you know saying doom and and going after Kanan and everything because Kanan has to be able to make this sacrifice in order for Ezra to finally get it for it to all click and for him to do um what needs to be done because and so this brings kind of our whole conversation together because I think what's going on in Lothal is yes, it's about liber- liberating Lothal, but this is a galaxy wide um, sort of thing as we're, as we're going to see in a couple of episodes. Um, so there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are coming together here as the, as the series winds down. There's another point that I haven't brought up that I'm just now remembering. I think another thing is that I think it was important not only for Ezra to watch Kanan die, but to be given the opportunity to save Kanan. Um, I think that part of the reason, you know, even beyond like, even if, you know, we're going to throw out the entire idea of, you know, Kanan had to be among the wolves for Ezra to truly, you know, go on with that. I think that Ezra had to be given that first test of being in the world between worlds Here's the opportunity to save Kanan and to be told by Ahsoka in that moment, you know, the Force putting everybody in the right place at the right time, being told by Ahsoka, this is not the right thing to do. Um, You have to look at this moment in time and allow it to play out and to not try to change that so that in future episodes to come, he can look at the promise and the, the temptation of his family through a very similar, you know, means of the world between worlds with the emperor there, he has to look at that and learn the lesson that Kanan taught him by dying um, and then by giving him the additional opportunity to save him and saying, okay, in that moment, it was the right thing. Regardless of my feelings, I learned there that it's better to allow it to play out. So with that lesson kind of in his mind, that had to be there so that he could face that future temptation and say, I've been through this. The force has already taught me this, so I can say no as hard as it is. Okay, I, I got things to say about that future temptation, so we'll we'll table that uh. for now. <laughs> yeah. So the next episode is Jedi Knight. This one is directed by Saul Ruiz and written by Dave Filoni and Henry Gilroy. Uh, so after using the force to discover Hera is being interrogated in Price's office, Ezra, Sabine, and Kanan make a makeshift or make makeshift gliders to disguise themselves as Lothbats, 
Uh, I land on top of the Imperial Dome. Ezra and Sabine leave to find a vehicle to escape with, while Kanan breaks into Price's office to rescue Hera. After a brief fight with Rook where Kanan loses his lightsaber, Kanan and Hera use one of the gliders to land on top of a fuel depot where they await Ezra and Sabine in a stolen transport ship. Ezra fin- er, sorry, Hera finally confesses her love for Kanan and they share a kiss. Ezra and Sabine arrive to rescue them, but Price orders fire on the fuel depot. Kanan uses the force to throw Hera aboard the patrol ship as well as hold back the explosion long enough for them to escape. As they fly away, Kanan is consumed in the explosion. Yeah, that happens. Um, just to go back to the beginning of the episode, I like how Ezra puts, I mean, Kanan puts Ezra in charge because, uh, to, I guess to use Star Trek terms, he's emotionally compromised by the mission. Um, and just like, all across this season, and as well as in season uh, three and in bits and pieces, uh, season two, it's really great to see Ezra come into his own as a leader. You know, from where he started out as kind of the kid that no one on the crew really trusted to now quite often, as, as often as not, he's the one calling the shots. And basically for the, for the entire last half of the season, he is the leader. He's the one constantly pro- propelling them forward and you know, giving them the next target. It's just so great to see how much he has grown across these, uh, these four seasons. Yeah, and I also like just how how we can feel the stakes from just the opening scene here we can you know i think this is where we really start to feel like we're moving into the last half of you know things are kind of coming to a head um because just in tone there's something different about this you know we've we've rescued our you know captured rebel friends before and a lot of the times we even do so in a, a light-hearted manner but we can tell there's something different about this even from the beginning, I think part of that is our knowledge of whatever it is that Kanan was told by the Loth Wolf, um, and just the music and the way it's shot, um, and so whenever and the fact that you know Kanan does not feel like he can um, appropriately call the shots here, and I think we're I think there's another reason why I'm not entirely convinced that he saw everything the way it was going to happen um, by the Loth Wolf. I think that he just he knows what's going to happen. And he's going to let things play out the way they ought and allow someone in a more stable position to um, to call the shots. Yeah, early on in this episode, I really like that we get to see Governor Price unhinged um, and really put under the pressure here uh, to get results. And which is, of course, why she makes this completely insane <laughs> decision decision that she does at the end that ends up landing her in a, in a whole heap of trouble. It's been interesting to see her relationship with Thrawn play out in this series, but then also going back to Timothy Sons to Thrawn, or at least the first Thrawn novel extensively, um, sort of seeing her rise and fall here. And so I like I like uh, getting to see her her downfall, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, it, 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 when I first watched this season, it struck me as really weird because previously it seemed like Thrawn and Price were trusted allies. And so the the way he just turns on her towards the end of the season felt weird but however going back and reading Thrawn it feels like it's coming full circle that now he's he's finally got the chance to take her down man I need to read the books <laughs> and uh, Kanan gets a haircut and apparently Hera has terrible taste in hair because that's a cool haircut I miss the long hair though the long hair and the beard look pretty awesome <laughs> I do love when uh, 
after Kanan rescues Hera, he's like, oh, well, I see we're in a special mood. And she's just kind of all drugged up and loopy and just making all these cute observations. And it's just very sweet. And like it, this could have so easily become just ridiculous and slapstick, but they're able to keep, despite her being like absolutely hysterical and how crazy she is, they're able to keep it feel very sweet and natural and in character and not take away from the overall seriousness of this episode. Yeah, it was... I had a feeling that something tragic was about to happen. Um, and there was almost something bittersweet about the way it was happening with, with that knowledge in mind. Um, and yeah, it, it was, to me, it was much more sweet than it was, like than it could have been, you know, hokey and all this other stuff. Uh, I like her line where she's like, no, I, I really did not like that droid. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, especially considering, you know, we're coming off of all these episodes where Kanan is just trying to express himself. And now he's he's finding um, Hera in this completely loopy state and and he's just, you know, taking the best care of her he possibly could. And it's it's a really nice moment between the two characters. Um, even before that, I just real quick, I love this scene of um, of them putting together their gliders where you almost have this like disney kind of music not cheesy disney music but just this this very adventurous a different sounding music as they make it and you know they get launched in the sky um and the land his, the way he uh gets into the office like by coming underneath and pulling the guy out from under the floor and then Harris like no oh i thought he would come through the window <laughs> i i was i really liked everything about this episode you know especially just leading up to those moments and and their last moments together and now we come to it. Uh, yeah, this scene where Kanan finally dies is horrible, and it's really, really beautiful. Um, it just the the effects just to start with that are really incredible. Just the the, the way they animated the fire as it's you know coming up and he's holding it back. It, it's really beautiful. Um, and then it, the way they just the music and. The direction, everything about it is perfect. I don't know. It's, it's great, and it's really, really tragic. Yeah, I don't handle talking about this this <laughs> moment in this episode very well at all. <laughs> um, like, like legitimately, I still get choked up talking about it. Yeah, I I really came to love Kanan over the course of this show, and I didn't. It's it's weird, despite the fact that I felt like something was about to happen, it still kind of caught me off guard when you. I mean, they're standing on a fuel depot and they're being tra- chased by people with the blasters. It was telegraphed completely, but I was I was just I know whenever she ordered her fire, I think I was too busy typing in a stupid joke in my notes like, oh, she is like Kylo ordering fire on Luke, ha ha ha. And then I look up and it's blowing up and Kanan is like stopping with a force and I just. I completely stop everything I'm thinking about that moment and I'm just like not even breathing as I watch everything happen and you know Ezra and Hera are just screaming and you see like you said the the amazing visuals and the fire surround him and then they, they fly away and it just completely consumes them and it blows up and we cut to the end title card and it's just like like Infinity War style just yeah at like the white background and the ash is flowing in the the charred and burnt title card it's it was haunting i man it was very very emotionally affecting i definitely definitely had a uh, some some teary eyes 
Yeah, I was fully prepared for Kanan to die, but I was thinking that was more of a final episode sort of thing. So it did it did completely set me back because um, I thought I had a few more weeks with him. Yeah, it does happen pretty early in the season. Yeah. Yeah, Kanan has definitely been my favorite char- favorite new character from this show. And just the way he goes with the, the pure Jedi nobility of it all. Just the the way it look in Hera's eyes, and then going back to him, and you see his oh. eyes clear, and he finally sees like the Bendu had promised him. Yeah, well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so moving on to the next episode, which is Doom, directed by Ser- uh, Sergio Perez, uh, written by Dave Filoni and Christopher Yost. Uh, back at base, the rest of the team go their separate ways to grieve. Ezra is chased by Lothwolves onto the plains, uh, where he has a bunch of really weird visions that tell him. The Empire is trying to get inside the Jedi Temple. Sabine and Zeb go to pick a fight with Imperial Scouts, but are spotted and pursued by Rook. After a fight, they are able to defeat him, but then decide to spare his life. Thrawn berates Price for destroying the fuel depot, because that means that all production on his TIE Defenders will stop. And Hera adds Kanan to her family's Calaquari as Ezra returns, and the the reunited team uh, gets ready for their next mission. I like what I love about this episode is that we just get a, an episode where almost nothing happens and we just get to watch these characters grieve in their own way, which for you know this show is has often just kind of been with its pace really pell mell with its pacing just you know they have twenty two minutes and they have to tell the stories and they just kind of run from plot point to the next plot to the next plot point to just have an entire episode where we can kind of just like sit in our grief and grieve with these characters and see them each kind of doing their own thing and uh to to try and process this great loss it was very very nice yeah i i remember messaging you <laughs> i was like why have you done this to like <laughs> this is awful you know i i'm ready for a happy episode not not really but you know just emotionally i'm i'm ready to be in a better mood and you know as i said i was getting teary-eyed in in the death scene but for me the death scene always you know it's emotionally affecting but it's it's the fallout and the aftermath and the reaction that is that always ends up getting me and so whenever they come in for landing i think the moment that i actually like genuinely broke was when we see zeb walking up with a smile ready to you know congratulate them on just another mission accomplished you know same you know same old rebels uh, and Sabine comes out and just throws her helmet and storms off and Ezra you know tells him he's gone like no he's really gone and the first thing Zeb does is hug him these people have been like just obnoxious brothers to each other share this this long like embrace and then Chopper going up and, and taking Hera's hand oh, as gosh. she's crying on the cliff I I was trying to type my notes and this is when I noticed that it, it moved beyond just kind of like, you know, like, oh, my eyes are watery because I was I'm looking down taking notes on my phone. I had tears go down like and hit my hands as I typed and I'm like, oh, I was I was not ready for this. Yeah, I think it's I think it's honestly really bold storytelling to do something like this on Disney yeah. XD of all places to have an epi- uh, just a grieving episode after you've killed off, you know, one of the main characters. Um but it feels absolutely necessary. I can't imagine doing anything else. I think it would be so easy to do an entire episode full of gags or something where, you know, like they're painting up Rook or something like that, an entire episode yeah. of that. And 
yeah, they don't do that. We we absolutely need that time to grieve. And it aired back to back. Really? Uh, these two episodes okay. did. Did they? And, was, was the entire season aired that way? You know, it, I think it might have been actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just remembered like needing that episode for closure almost the first night that I watched it. And I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. Like you said, th- this entire episode dedicated to grieving process. Yeah, you know, there's some scouting and and a, a little bit of plot explanation stuff happening. But I mean, we spent an entire 22 minute episode where Hera is crying in a cave from the beginning of the episode to the end. Like, that's amazing to me that they allow themselves to just put this character in this one space and grieve there from start to finish. And it's not like, you know, we see her once at the beginning and then she comes out at the end. We go back to the cave, like, you know, when Chopper going in there to comfort her uh, with the whole Calicori scene. We're, we spend a good chunk of time just, just there. And that's kind of amazing to me. Yeah. Um, and I've made absolutely no secret of my general disdain for Chopper. However, the scene where he takes Hera's hand is just absolutely beautiful, and I will give him that. Chopper was just proven to me in that moment. He's he's the guy I always knew he was, and he's a real stand-up droid. Nah, he was hacked. <laughs> um, yeah, so then you, you know you have Sabine and Zeb kind of going for vengeance, um, and then it leads to a kind of a pretty cool fight with uh, Rook, who uses his cloaking device. Although you know we're not in the mood for a fair fight. Neither am I. And it just kind of, it was like the the scene in uh, Monsters, Inc. with Randall. So that's what, that's oh, yeah. what it reminded me yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like the whole painting him thing is a bit goofy. I'm kind of just in the, you know, go ahead and kill him camp. But I do like that they, they decided not to go, not to fight their war out of fantasy and not to destroy what they hate kind of thing. <laughs> I, I love that we get that brutal moment of, of Zeb just laying into Rook. You know, uh, I was... I was almost waiting for it to go like full Clone Wars and for the camera to cut from Zeb's percep- uh, perspective and a look down on Rook is just getting like a bloody face at that point. Um, but I do like that that they went that dark and that Sabine had to uh, had to get him off. And the one of the things that I did like, you know, because I, I I have not been a big fan of like all of Sabine's colors and all this paint. It it feels weird and just kind of out of out of place in Star Wars. But I did like the way it was used here because to me it, it felt like it was sending a message where, you know, even after Kanan's death, these are still the rebels they've been fighting this whole time and their spirit isn't completely broken. Um, and so I, him being returned alive and covered in her typical paint felt like it was, it was a sign that they have not been defeated. Um, so I, I actually liked it. I thought it, it did serve a purpose here. Um, we do get a bit of the classic Rebels humor when they first spot Rook. It's like, oh, he's like a baby Rancor. <laughs> and then when Rook looks, it's like, ah, he looked right at me. <laughs> I don't want to look at him again. <laughs> and uh, the scene where Thrawn just berates Price for destroying the fuel. Like, we've seen Thrawn do a lot of very dark and scary things. I think this is the scariest he's ever been. And because it looks like he, like previously, he's always been very calm and dispassionate, even when he's calmly describing how he's going to kill you. Like here, he actually loses it, and is like I like the price just killed Kanan the previous episode, and I'm actually kind of feeling sorry for her 
because because Thrawn is just so absolutely disgusted with her and you know, is telling her in every way he can. Yeah, I think you know up to this point, uh, it almost seemed like he always had like a contingency plan for when one of like someone surrounding him messed up, you know. Um, but as the season has told us, and we already talked about, you know, like Krennic and him are both vying for the attention and and the funding of the empire or of the emperor with you know Krennic having Project Stardust. Which is awesome that it's named in this season. That's so cool. Yeah. But everything, you know, whether he quashes like this particular cell or not, you know, it's, he probably will eventually in his mind, but everything he has is all dependent at this point on his defenders. And so for like the first time ever, he is truly in a position where you have genuinely messed up my plans and I am not used to that and I don't like that. And so to see him, to hear actual and legitimate anger from him and emotion, it <laughs> it freaked me out sitting down. So then the, the final character we have is Ezra. He goes out and starts to grieve and then he's chased around by wolves for a while because wolves are jerks. And then he goes to sleep, and then he wakes up, and the cone he was sleeping next to is a gigantic wolf who calls himself Doom and tells him to fight. And they give him a piece of, of art. I forget, does the, piece that, the piece they give him shows the father, son, and daughter, right? It, yeah. it shows the hands, but it, you don't know that that's what it is yet. Just the hands? Okay. Yeah. And they, they basically tell him uh, that the Jedi Temple is in danger, that he has to fix it. Um it's actually it's also another scary scene where the wolves are really really being quite mean to poor Ezra the dudes had a a really rough night you know cut him some slack (laughs) nah he's gotta get his button gear (laughs) so the next episode is Wolves and the Door Um, this one is directed by Dave Filoni and Bosco NG and written by Dave Filoni Um, so after convincing the rebels of the need to revisit the temple on Lothal Ezra leads the crew to the den of the Lothwolves, who use a tunnel through space to travel the great distance to the Jedi Temple. Upon arrival, they find the Empire has the entire temple on lockdown, and that the entrances that were there before are now gone. Disguised the stormtroopers, Ezra and Sabine enter the dig site and examine a painting of the Mortis gods on the temple walls. Sabine is captured, but Ezra is able to remain hidden and manipulate the painting into opening a portal. The base is alerted to the rebel presence, but Ezra is able to escape into the gateway just in time. Yeah, this is like, you thought it was weird before. (laughs) This is where it gets crazy. Um, I love this episode. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I I, I love uh, Minister Hyden. He he looks like he wandered in from the Braveheart set or something. But he's. I love that we actually have a, a, a competent, intelligent, actually engaging villain. Like he's he's only in these two episodes. I kind of wish that I was kind of felt bad when they killed him, just because I wanted to sit around and talk archaeology with him some more. <laughs> yes, I, I liked him a lot. He's voiced uh, by uh, Malcolm McDowell, who's a really famous actor who's been around forever. Yeah, I like what you said about him being a very competent villain. It seems like so many times. Uh... I, I have not been a fan of way the way the series has handled Death Troopers, especially. 
um, with mm. them just kind of being bumbling and, and fairly easy to defeat and, and everything like that. And of course, st- stormtroopers are stormtroopers. Uh, but this season, we do still we get some we get Rook who's handled really well, um, and we get Hayden who is who is handled really well. I guess the, the, his conversations with Sabine are mostly next episode. I'll push those off. But yeah, we just basically this whole thing is them sneaking around the uh, this archaeo- archaeological dig, and Ezra standing in plain sight <laughs> reading the wall. <laughs> Uh, as you say, you know, we see the uh, pictures of the Mortis gods as uh, as Haydn calls. I just, I just love that term. Like, like they they're known in mythology as that. And I I don't know what entirely it means that they are here, or if it actually means anything. I have my doubts, but it is just it's just cool that these creatures that are you know be, have become synonymous with certain sides of the force are all throughout jedi lore and there's just this this power that maybe if they don't even understand what they are they're they're they're, they're in there in the legends and they're kind of appear all over the place it's just, it's just a really cool concept and way of bringing the world together i i loved how trippy that this episode allows itself to get you know even from the beginning the the trip on the loath wolves to me is awesome you know at first you think it's just you know we're riding across but they kind of like submerge into the grass yeah. it's like it's such a cool effect um but once we get there this feels like it goes full indiana jones like <laughs> the music almost feels exactly like the music um whenever in raiders of the lost ark he's like looking around and he's got the staff and he's trying to find the hole with where to put it in it, it's that exact same kind of tone and vibe that i get there um and you know we're looking at all these different ancient paintings and and i i got goosebumps whenever we whenever they light it up and we see everyone and all of the floodlights start going on and then it's revealed what the painting is um such a cool scene i think the one thing that i'm just not sure on and i i feel like it messes a little bit with what what we saw before it seemed like the jedi or that anakin and ahsoka and obi-wan had no idea who the father and son and daughter were and yet here we're told that we see them throughout jedi lore and so that doesn't feel like it, it lines up completely it feels like that was a discovery in the clone wars whereas oh, i don't know that any of them are among the most learned jedi though that could be true enough but then you'd almost think although i was thinking you know they they would have told somebody somebody that would have known but i guess that could have happened for all we know and just never i, I bet you madame jacosta knows probably oh, she knows she don't know where camino is though <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i guess there are limits the, the, yeah it gets really weird with the way they touch the wall and that they father points and all that the wolves start running in a circle it's really just just strange but uh, i i i kind of i went along with it um i love in the ending when ezra runs through the wall and the two stormtroopers look at each other and just charge into the wall yeah just yeah good slapstick um yeah the use of 2d animation here is is really nice too to make it look even more bizarre and otherworldly I do think I had the biggest like jump off my couch freak out moment when the wolves started running around in a circle because after sometime after the end of season two, 
when Ahsoka quote unquote died um, or something happened to Ahsoka Dave Filoni released a series of like trading cards that er, that he drew um, at least by release them he put them online and um, they all had to do with Ahsoka not only did we see Morai and the owl in one of um, in one of those cards but we also saw a circle made of wolves um, and so oh. I, like Josh and I had been like talking about those for the longest time like what the heck does it mean how is that going to come into play and so when i finally saw the wolves start to circle around i, I freaked out that's how i felt when i heard uh ray and kylo's voices in the yeah. next episode um do you what is the deal with the owl i was that ever established in the clone wars yeah the um the daughter becomes morai sorry the daughter becomes Morai when she, after she dies, gives her life to to resurrect Ahsoka. D- did I miss that? When, when did this happen? That's the very end of the Mortis arc. Okay. D- does the owl go with him in the ship? I don't... Yeah, I don't know how Morai got to got to the world between worlds or. Well, it's a, okay. it's a force goddess incarnate. She can get around. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I was wondering when she says, "You know, we're old friends. She saved my life once." Okay. Okay. I I, just, I entirely missed all of that. Huh, that's weird. I think that makes sense, and it lines up with everything, too, because I think you had mentioned that the first time you remember seeing it in the Clone Wars is in the last arc of Season 3, which would be after the Mortis arc and during, you know, Ahsoka's greatest trial at that point, during her fight for survival. But you could, I mean, I think that gives that more weight now, you know, like, I don't think we actually have to see that owl get involved physically, um... Maybe it was manip- using the force, like manipulating and kind of being there and helping Ahsoka. Uh, but that's cool to know who that is now and, and to get confirmation here and then to rethink about those episodes. Um, and also of note, uh, this Ian McDermott returns as the Emperor. Um, like, I, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but Sam Witwer actually voiced the Emperor in like his first one or two appearances in this show. And he, he did an amazing appre- uh, impression as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so next episode is A World Between Worlds. It's directed by Dave Filoni and Stuart Lee and written by Dave Filoni. It's cr- like, I think Dave Filoni had his hands on every episode, like in the last half of the season, which is pretty unprecedented for these shows. So Ezra finds himself in a very strange place. He sees many different doors that lead to other times and as well as many voices from both the past and future. He sees uh, through one door, he sees the fight between Vader and Ahsoka and pulls her through before Vader can kill her. Meanwhile, Minister Hayden converses with Sabine about all things art and archaeology. Because he has saved Ahsoka, Ezra wants to go and try and save Kanan as well, but Ahsoka convinces him not to. Palpatine appears in another door and attacks them with blue flames, but they are both able to escape out of their respective doors. Hera and Zeb infiltrate the base and rescue Sabine, and Ezra closes the temple and they escape as it sinks back into the ground, leaving no trace. Yeah, this one's crazy. <laughs> this whole episode is just insane. Um, in what it adds to the Force Lord, just right off the opening, as Ezra you know wakes up inside there and he's walking around, we hear voices from all the films including the sequels which was just amazing just hearing ray and kylo and uh what's what's the peter nyango's character uh, uh maz maz Kanata. maz Kanata, uh talking about the force and just every from every era was just so mind-blowing and just the visuals um where it's like just these white uh walkways over looks like stars it felt, it felt like a mario kart track or something but 
which is th- that visual of these white lines over stars is what the uh, the arena in one of the more the mortis the mortis episode where Anakin receives his test to determine if he's the one where, the as he's one. yeah as he's harnessing the force of the planet the floor kind of turns into that that like kind of the just the starry that starry night uh, visual so it's cool seeing that come back here. And just, yeah, just just vi- before we even get to the whole time travel thing, just visually and hearing all these different characters talking about the Force was just really cool. Yeah, I was spazzing out, and I, I just I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to watch this episode twice. I'm going to watch it and just be in awe of it, and I'm going to rewatch it and take notes, because I'm not, like, not going to have my phone in my hand during this. And I, I put subtitles on, and I was like, I'm gonna, what all did they put in here? And it's amazing. It feels like every single aspect of the cinematic uh, series is represented here where we hear Alec Guinness talking uh, and then we hear Steve Stanton as um, Obi-Wan speak. We hear lines from him. And to me, that was just testament of how amazing his impression was where they're so comfortable with his voice as Obi-Wan that they play Alec Guinness and him back to back and it it flows perfectly. Um, And we hear James Arnold Taylor as Obi-Wan as well. Um, along with Ewan McGregor, and then, like you said, the sequels, and um, just there was something like I. It, it was amazing to me, you know, that this had already been out and experienced by so many people. But this was, you know, the first time I had been through season four. I was just like, how? How is the rest of the Star Wars community not still like just flipping out over this? This is so <laughs> amazing. We've never seen like this level of involvement of the entire series in a in a episode of their animated shows, but uh, yeah, ev- everything that happened here had me just like completely glued to the screen with subtitles on, making sure like I didn't miss anything. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of everything that happened in this episode, and I suppose that introducing time travel is divisive. Um, I'm a fan of it here in this story. Is it something that I think they need to not tell J.J. Abrams about? Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We can do what? <laughs> and I, I feel like the name, A World Between Worlds, is a reference to the uh, magician's nephew with the wood between the worlds. Um, and if it isn't a conscious reference, that makes me very sad, but uh, I hope it is. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that, would, that makes sense. Yeah. One of the things that I like about this, and I guess, you know, we had, I had brought it up earlier. Um, I think it's a really powerful moment for Ezra, you know, having just spent one episode seeing the death of his master, another episode just grieving over it. You know, we're not, we don't even get another season before we have to revisit it. You know, after being through all of this, he has to stand by and watch it happen again. And this time it's even harder because you can, you know, he could fool himself into thinking, you know, I can, I can do something here. I can change something. Um, and that, so that moment for it, it I, I really felt a lot for him as a character. Um, and I think though that that, that did show that I, I'm with you. I think that's what happened with uh, Ahsoka in, in season three that, you know, cause after, after Ezra, pulls her out and then she ends up going back in. She walks back into the temple in the exact same manner that she did. Um, but I still think that you can change the past here because 
Ahsoka warns him, you know, Kanan saved you in that moment. If you remove him from that moment, you kill yourself. Um, and so it felt like the, there was a, a level of danger at being, or at having access to all of this, to be able to, you know, there was a sense of consequence. You know, you can't go and do all of this because these events happen so that these events would play out. Um, I just, I really like that scene a lot. Yeah, I love how the the, uh, the temple seems to follow their thoughts. Like when, after Ezra saves Ahsoka, and he thinks, well, maybe I'm here to save Kanan. It, all, it turns to only Kanan quotes about the Force in the background. Another thing that's really weird is that we're given hints that the Emperor, he can manipulate things inside the world at this point. Um, and maybe he's manipulating some of these things that Ezra is seeing or controlling what he hears or something like that, but he can't enter. Um and some of these questions, I don't even think we get answered by the time the series is over, which I'm perfectly fine with. But it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. It's almost like the, the force has like a firewall for this world yeah. between worlds. Well, yeah, I'm gu- guessing that. Uh, obviously, he found out in so- somewhere about this place. That's why he sent Minister Hayden to dig it up. So I'm guessing as soon as. Hayden realized that, that Ezra had entered, that he phoned. Uh, Palpatine, and then he started cooking up his spells. Yeah. Uh, whatever and sorcery. Although, given the fact that we're in a literal time machine, that could have happened 20 years ago. <laughs> like, it's crazy thinking that. I mean, I, 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 I think we're given to believe that it's the present, but it could actually be any time in Palpatine's career. Does it, I think he calls him Ezra, though. Yeah, he does. Okay. So yeah. I think I I think he would have to be you know it has to be now, just because he's aware of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I thought was super cool about it was it seemed to really parallel nicely with Yoda's arc in the Clone Wars, where Yoda goes into the the sacred Force Temple on um oh what's it called Malakor um, Malakor, which is a Filoni confirmed is is Korriban. Um, the Wait, ancient. What? What's the difference? Uh, so, uh, it was the the Sith homeworld was always called Korriban, and then whenever it came time to go to Korriban or Korriban in the show, George Lucas thought Korriban sounded too much like Coruscant, and so he, he renamed <laughs> it after years of of lore. And Filoni kind of had to damage control, and he's like, "Oh, it's just an ancient Jedi name for the same planet. It's still Korriban." Uh, George Lucas and his names. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what I like about it is, you know, when, when Yoda goes to a Malachor or Korriban or whatever you want to call it, um, and he goes to the area where the five, um, four spirits or whatever they were, where they can't follow. And he goes in there. It's almost like this otherworldly area. And Sidious is aware of that. And he breaks out the blue fire and the spells. Mm-hmm. And so it almost seems like the, that whatever sorcery he's using there is how he's able to somehow physically interact with these people, even whenever they're in these like other plane kind of force areas, because both times, whether it was Yoda in there, because I think we meant to think like he kind of stayed put during that. And it was almost like in terms of his physical body and he was just transported somewhere else. Uh, But it was a very otherworldly place, kind of ethereal place that Yoda was there where Sidious was trying to manipulate him. 
And then again here, the world between worlds, he breaks out the blue fire and he's trying to interact with them through there. So I just, I thought that was cool um, that it's the same kind of sorcery and the same kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt too that the Emperor would just be able to sense if Ezra did some, entered into a place that was completely different. Um, we see in Thrawn Alliances just how how powerful the emperor is um, because he sends vader on this mission to an outer rim planet because he senses a disturbance in the force and like vader gets down on the planet and is like oh i kind of feel something or an echo of something um but the emperor felt that all the way back on coruscant um so the emperor is a pretty sensitive guy (laughs) he's just a sensitive (laughs) soul uh yeah, there's a nice little connection between Ezra and Ahsoka, where he's like, where she, when where they're standing by the door as as Kane is dying, he's like, Yo, what are you asking me to do? She says, you know, I couldn't save my master, and you can't save yours. I'm asking you to let go, and it's just a really sweet moment where they connect. And also on, on the other side of the door, we have uh, Sabine and Hayden discussing art and archaeology. It, it, it felt a lot like uh, Kanan's conversation with Fen Rao. Back in when, when we first meet him, just kind of two opponents who are very intelligent and respectful, just talking. And I, I don't know, I, I just like that. Uh, <laughs> Where's the show did it more often? I, I like the way it's shot too, where we, we, we've got it framed where we have the, the people in the two chairs and the, you know, the one person on either end of the screen and the dim light. And we're just slowly panning in and, and cutting the close ups. It felt like, like another live action scene where it's, you know he's playing with with the camera in cool ways and and I thought both actors are giving a really cool performance. I'm like, man, I'm I'm really in, you know I've got all of this insanity going on on the other side of the story, and yet I'm still fully engaged in yeah. this conversation. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a really cool moment that they were able to maintain interest in something as mundane as you know talking about this cave painting. Uh, while it's juxtaposed with this like lore shattering world we're at. Yeah, I like you know he's he's trying to keep conversations civil and every time she insults him he's like, come on, we're having we're having a polite conversation about art. And but I also like that he's completely self aware that the Empire is he's he's just in it for the intellectual knowledge, but he's still he's like he doesn't like try to make any kind of excuses or mental gymnastics to get around it. <laughs> towards the end when she finally assaulted one too many times she's like okay you're a mandalorian you only understand violence i guess we'll just beat you so yeah at the end when they they all they all after as a uh, palpatine attacks then they escape out of their out of their doors and ezra closes the gate and the, the music as they escape as they're driving out on the stolen bulldozer or whatever is really good that chopper uses to save them i might add uh, <laughs> so but uh yeah it's it's great um just the music as it's going on and then ezra passes out and then he wakes up in the later on and everything is gone it's it's really it's one of the, again like this whole thing's been super trippy it continues to be trippy all the way to the ending where Hera is kind of almost there like saying goodbye to kane like somehow she knows that there the whatever force connection there was is kind of centered around there and we see the wolf kind of walking off into the sunrise um just a very lovely goodbye to kanan um yeah we had that whole episode of grieving and and they're still getting me and we have that wonderful moment that we didn't talk about either where 
where she puts her hand on her shoulder and we have like that kind of force ghost looking cane and standing oh. over her with his hand yeah. on her shoulder. It's just such a such a beautiful and haunting and sad and wonderful image. It's amazing. Yeah. I, but that that ending scene that when he when he's looking around and it's just this other world it, it was one of the it wasn't unsettling and just a creepy terrifying kind of way but there was just something so unsettling and unnerving about the way that whole sequence played out where he gets up and it almost feels like we're on another planet it's just something so ethereal uh and surreal about the way it looked you know and he he walks up to Hera and she clearly looks broken up about it, it you know it, it's rare that this series makes me feel that way but during this entire scene i was just getting the chills yeah, so the next episode is A Fool's Hope. This one is directed by Dave Filoni and Saul Ruiz and written by Henry Gil, uh, Gilroy and Steve Melching. Um, after being contacted by writer Azadi, claiming he would give away the location of the Rebels in exchange for amnesty, Price and a squadron of TIE fighters lead an attack on the Rebel encampment. During this time, Hera, along with Hondo, Ketsu, Wolf, and Gregor, attach themselves to an incoming Imperial freighter landing on Lothal and arrive as backup for the captured rebels. The fight is won through the help of Lothwolves, and Governor Price is successfully captured. So now we're coming to some unpleasantness. Uh, first time through... like This episode is very, very much continues directly into the finale. Um, it's kind of all, all of the, one large plot. First time through this season, I hated the finale. And I was wondering if I was just surprised going through again. I hated it even more the second viewing. So I, I, I think I'll save my rage for the discussion of next episode. And we could just focus on the positives uh, for this one. Even though my dislikes include a lot of the stuff that happens in this. Uh, just focusing on the positives. The action is really cool. I think a lot of the action across this series has been a little stilted. Um, kind of a lot of two sides kind of just standing and shooting at each other until the stormtroopers inevitably died. Here, there's a lot of just a lot of movement, a lot of various elements moving around each other. Just a very dynamic action scene that we haven't often seen. Yeah, there's some shots that almost remind me of uh, of like the Avengers in the that climactic battle where we're, we're following Iron Man as he flies through the buildings and then the camera kind of stops as we pass Thor and we see what he's doing. They, they use a lot of stuff like here where we're, we're kind of flying around with Sabine and we'll, we'll pass up the landing pad and then we'll hold on there with Ezra. Um, it does feel super dynamic and, and really exciting. And there's so much vertical and horizontal motion going all over the place. And it, it's just, you know, for a place that's just kind of on this hillside, they end up make, like finding a lot of cool little individual action moments to follow. Uh, I thought it was really well shot. Yeah, I think by far my favorite is that we get to see these wolves kind of fully in action in a real world sense here. The even though we got like in promotional trailers and stuff this shot of the wolves coming up with their eyes glowing behind Ezra, it still absolutely gave me chills um to see it with, you know, with Kevin Kiner's music accompanying and everything. And then just the the menace of these wolves as they um unleash hell on <laughs> Uh, anyone who stands in their way and uh, you know Rook has sort of had enough by the time they come out of the cave yeah that, that oh, they, after they, they've all lost and they run into the caves and they pursue and that shot of the glowing eyes and as, as Ezra lights the lightsaber it's, it's 
you know, it's the stuff trailers are made of, and it's amazing. Um, and it is it is surprisingly like brutal. Yeah. The way yeah. there's no there's no, no blood, and that's a little sad, but <laughs> just the way they tear apart the stormtroopers and just throwing them everywhere is was kind of shocking. Yeah, and throwing them off cliffs. Yeah, I was gonna say I think the uh, the more sadistic side of me came out because they would chew on them a bit and then they'd throw them off, and I was like, no, 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 you know, like just run them all apart. <laughs> Uh, I was like, oh, wait, 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 Disney XD. That's and I right. love that uh, uh, Gregor's um, like t t talking to Wolf. You got your wolf pack back. <laughs> yes, uh, love just lines like that. And it's even funnier considering uh, Dave Filoni is obsessed with wolves. And he like, he um, he has what he refers to as his wolf pack, which is just like a bunch of random, like just, you know, Star Wars commentators and fans and stuff. And um, Another great sequence is... um. Uh, who went to recruit uh, Ketsu, Wolf, and Gregor. Uh, when they're trying to get back in, they're using uh, Hondo to get back to the blockade. <laughs> and the plan is to basically float up next to a uh, a freighting route, and the, the freighter will come out of hyperspace. And they're talking, you know, well, what if you get hit? He's like, I've only been hit one, two, three. I, I have done this many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great, great Hondo again. Yeah, that's... that's uh... Whenever we first see him, you know, and he and he says, you know, like, for that boy, I would do anything. I'm like, is this Honda? I yeah, I, I don't like that. Uh, he had to, he would only do if he had something for it, something uh, in it for him. Well, so I don't know if I don't think it's in character, but uh, unlike I, I actually did like it. Or then again, it, the previous episode where we saw him, he told us that he had been growing because he gave them part of the truth instead of none of the <laughs> truth. Exactly. So, to me, I don't know. I kind of took this as, you know, in his old age, Hondo has found actual purpose. You know, he's after everything. He's he's ready to latch on to some sort of ideal, and maybe it came a little bit out of the blue. But I'm I'm okay. I think it was Melch that finally opened his heart. And that's the thing. I think <laughs> that they really did set up a connection with Melch. And even though Melch just has all these little you know funny moments i i, I really ended up loving melts a lot um and there's something like they can fly which is a fantastic line um and the moment when melch gets shot and nahondo <laughs> thinks he lost it's man you know i they created a new dynamic and like a, a new buddy team up that i i didn't even realize i i wanted so badly until i got it but uh but as for how they handled hondo you know I I'm glad that I can guilt free just love Hondo. I, I I liked where they took him. This episode is mainly just you know after, like setting the stage for this big action sequence, um, and we talked about how cool it was. But there's just a, other things that I want to talk about. Like, you know, it kind of changes once the ghost gets there, and one of the things that I notice is um, Hera. Well, I guess not chronologically within the timeline, but in terms of media that came out, Hera beat Han in flipping over using a spaceship to swat a TIE fighter out of the sky. Because uh, we see that same move here, and it looks just as cool here. Um, and, you know, speaking of Hondo and Melch, I just had, like, the biggest smile of glee as, as Melch is manning the gun on the ghost, and he's, like, getting shaken big time every time he fires the gun and his like hat's bouncing on his head and he gets a shot and he's like uh you can do it melch with my direction and, or whatever his line is it's it's such a fun sequence 
All right. Uh, so the f- next episode and the season finale and series finale is Family Reunion and a Farewell. This was directed by Dave Filoni, Bosco Engie, and, and Sergio Perez, and it was written by Dave Filoni, Henry Gilroy, Carrie Hart, Simon Kinberg, and Stephen Melching. So everybody worked on this episode on this uh, two-parter. So using Price's clearance codes, the Rebels infiltrate the Imperial Dome on Capital City. Uh, they call all Imperial personnel back and then lock it down, intending to fly the base away and destroy it with everyone inside, which is really cold. Um, Rook, uh, who escaped the battle, warns Thrawn and takes down the city's shields. Thrawn arrives and begins bombing the city until Ezra surrenders and joins him on his ship. Meanwhile, the rebels are able to turn the shield back on. Gregor and Rook are killed in the scuffle. On Thrawn's ship, Ezra is taken to a hologram of the Empire, who uses fragments of the Jedi Temple to offer him a chance to join his parents. Ezra refuses and destroys the shrine. Meanwhile, Thrawn orders the bombardment of the city, but the shield protects it. Ezra confronts Thrawn, and a bunch of Purgles, who were summoned by Mart, arrive, destroying the fleet and taking the flagship into hyperspace with Thrawn and Ezra on board. Uh, the rebels launch the dome and blow it up uh, with Price and everyone else inside. In an epilogue that takes place after the Battle of Endor, Sabine tells us that the Empire never returned to Lothal. Hera continued fighting in the uh, rebellion and had Kanan's kid, or at least we hope it's Kanan's. Uh, Zeb took Callus to Lyrasan. Sabine and Ahsoka, um, who has been somewhere for the last two years, go in search of Ezra who should be dead because he went into hyperspace in an un, uh, un, uh, unpressurized cabin. But I'll get to that later. Uh, yeah. So that's the, that's the, that's the plot of this season. Um, so I have a lot of problems. <laughs> Basically, I have problems with every single thing that happens in this episode and a lot of stuff that happened in the previous episode. Uh, so I'm just going to monologue for a while, then I'll let you guys talk <laughs> and argue about it. Uh, for, for me, my, my big problem is that not I don't find a single element of Ezra's plan that actually works. Like the, the, from the opening, we're having Ryder Rizzotti tell Price where the rebel base is, and then not telling anyone. Like having them have a real ambush. I mean, have a real sneak attack where nobody knows, and they're defeated not once but twice. Like they're, they're defeated once. Then Sabine and uh, Hera shows up and gives them four more guys, and then they're quickly defeated again, and they only win because the uh, the wolves show up. And like, it's just why would you do that? Why would if you have Price coming, why not tell her to come to a place where you actually have an ambush set up, and like on your own terms, rather than risking the lives of everyone in your crew in a really stupid plan that only works because of dumb luck. <sighs> And then, like, they, then they, they didn't even need price. All they use price for is to rate to allow themselves to land on the dome. But we've already seen them infiltrate not just the dome, but a hundred other imperial installations without clearance codes. Like, like we, we they've already established they don't need that. So, like, the the whole plot of the previous episode is unnecessary because we don't need price and her clearance codes. And then going to the next step of the plan, am I supposed to believe that? The Empire's infrastructure is so stupid that with if you just have a half dozen people lock themselves in one office, they can literally send the ship in the ship off and kill everybody inside. And there's no, no there are no safety measures. Um, and also locking yourself inside with hundreds, if not thousands of stormtroopers. How did you survive all that time and not die? And then just getting to the purgle. Oh, my gosh. Uh why 
I, I don't understand how. Why did since when does Ezra control the Purgle? And if he could call the if he if he knew how to call them on the radio, like just send a radio signal into space, and the Purgle, who we've never actually established are loyal to him, will come and save you. Like why didn't he do that back on Zero Hour or before he did this whole harebrained plan? And if he knew they were coming, just just the, everything about what he does, and then once he goes to the uh, the ship. After they arrive, why does he go to confront Thrawn? Like, he knew they were coming, and he's either controlling them or in constant communication with them. He goes to confront Thrawn, and then after the, the uh, Purgles grab Thrawn, he stays there and goes into hyperspace, despite the fact that, like, wh why? I don't understand why he was in, he went to confront him in the first place. I don't understand why he didn't get out again. It's just the whole episode seems framed around Ezra has to be gone. So instead of actually creating real dramatic reasons, they just kind of kick the can down the road and say, we're just going to send them off into space. But they, they, no, there's no dramatic reason for him to be there. There's no dramatic – like the, solving the whole conflict with the, with the Purgle is not dramatic because they're, they're just animals that you called on the phone. And, and then with Ezra, there, there's no dramatic reason. There's no story or dramatic reason for him to be on that ship. And they're trying to like recreate this this – Kanan's pose of him holding the force in both directions. It's just everything about it just doesn't work either dramatically or plot-wise for me. And then for the, fi for the final straw, how are they even alive? They went into hyperspace in an uncompressed cabin. We've already seen from the Wrath Tar in The Force Awakens what happens to creatures when they go into hyperspace without the protection. And then once they get there, they're going to die because they're in an uncompressed cabin. I just... I hate everything about this episode. Go, go ahead. <laughs> well, let me uh, try to take that point by point. So I, I share your frustrations with Azadi, uh, like that whole, the way that goes down where, I mean, it's not an ambush and it should be an ambush. You know, it's pretty much just an invitation for a, a typical fight they've always had, you know, as opposed to a, to a, a fake out. Um, because there's only like yeah we got the ghosts but they still have four tie fighters you know we we didn't win this fight because we got the upper hand we won this fight because we fought it and ended up having to win through sheer strength when we fought all these other fights um, so I I dislike that I think there's a much smarter way to do that as for their need for price and the whole like protocol thirteen I disagree with a lot of your problems there I think. Part of it is... They didn't use Price for Protocol 13. Sabine just did that on her own. That's true. But, so, let me get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, as, as for, so, so landing there, the last time we saw them land there, they were only able to do so. Like, there was, there was an entire montage, you know, around, around that. And that was just getting three people up there at night in an area where... Um, where, you know, we could disguise ourselves as loath bats. That, you know, you, with all the people going there... You you can't really do that. Although I guess in this case they you know if were they to do that they wouldn't need all those people. Um, the way I took it was more of price is there for insurance. One they don't know how protocol thirteen operates. You know I think it's it's I guess safe to assume that um, that you would need someone of higher authorization. I think what it what they should have had they should have had to have forced 
uh, Price herself give the order as opposed to Azadi impersonating um, Yularen. Because uh, then I think you fully justify without like a shadow of doubt why they had to have her. As for the, you know, putting all that aside, as for the, the plan, I don't think any of the stormtroopers jumped on there thinking, okay, we're going to go up and we're going to, you know, blow up. Maybe, you know, Price was able to but, put but, some but, sort of code but Thrawn, on the... Thrawn, I mean, uh, Rook warns Thrawn and Thrawn, he sends him in there and Rook's there almost the entire time. And they're, they're fighting stormtroopers almost the entire time. They're they're in the the bridge for the majority of it. But the, they had to kill stormtroopers to get into the bridge, and then, sure. But that's that's fine. Yeah, they they can kill stormtroopers easy. But the, um, then, then the base is alerted, and you have a thousand stormtroopers. But they kill them before the base is alerted. There's a lot of stormtroopers on the planet of Lothal. No, yeah, but but what I'm saying is, whenever they whenever they first get there, the only stormtroopers who see anything are instantly killed. There's never an opportunity because, you know, they don't they don't go through the halls initially and run around for a while trying to get there, you know. I mean, from the very beginning. And that's the thing. They had to land at a very specific place, at a place that only Price could get them to with those codes because uh, they're, they're right there to the point to where Zeb is able to launch Melchup right on the windows to the bridge. So the only stormtroopers that would have had a chance to alert anyone are killed on the bridge. But so, Rook pretty immediately starts radioing around. But so so that that makes sense right there, you know, like he he knows what's going on, but Ezra couldn't have factored that into his plan. So far as like the plan makes sense to me up until that point, and even at that point, because like I said, that's that's not a variable he could have anticipated if everything had it gone is according if to you plan. have forced visions of the future and know everything like he did. See, I don't think he knew. Every, I, I think there's another disagreement I where I I don't think we're meant to believe. He saw everything, um, even with um, what's his name, the the long haired red headed kid. Um, when Mark. he says Ezra said he didn't say Ezra said this would happen. He said Ezra said this might happen if things aren't able. He he spoke about it as if this was a la, you know last ditch effort. If we can't get my plan to work, then uh, we're gonna have to do this. Well, why not start with the purgles? And why, why not use them two years ago? And how does he control the Purgles? <laughs> well, the, the episode with the Purgles, that, that set that up. He made that Force connection, and you know they were kind of idiots bumping in on whatever they bumped into before him, and the second he makes the connection, it almost feels like he's leading them as an army. But th- that, that was still, that, that was fighting their own fight. That wasn't fighting for the rebellion. No, but the thing is, it felt like there was a level of control that he had over them. Because... If it was just them fighting their own fight, why weren't they fighting that fight before him? You know, because they were there being shot at before Ezra showed up. And it's not until Ezra makes that connection that it seems like they even have the ability or or knowledge or whatever to fight back. So I think to a certain extent, he's using them through the force. And I think that's part of why he has to stay on the ship. You know, part like, is he holding his hands out to recreate Kanan's last scene? Yeah, it's the imagery. But I also think that means that up until they go to light speed, maybe, maybe the reason he told Sabine, like, I'm going to need you to come find me and we don't know how long it takes. You know, it'd be one thing if he just went to a random, you know, light, you know, went to light speed, came out at a random destination, probably not too hard to find my way back. The fact that he stayed there the entire time almost makes me think, and, you know, he's clearly, he's holding his hand out. I think we're meant to well, think he's, he's using the- f- to hold Thrawn back and then hold the stormtroopers back. They, and they establish as, why he is doing that. 
but he's also sending them into light speed. Is he? Like that's what they never I took. established that he whether he's in control or just they're just doing it on their their own free will. It's just it's just see. I've that's always that's my problem with this because all the, of this just with the happens. episode in season two. It always seemed like he was controlling them to to an extent, and so the way I took that was not only was he using them to subdue Thrawn, he was also using it to send them into light speed, and maybe. You know, it seemed like he was using the force to ensure that wherever they went, it was as far away as he could possibly be, you know. And so that's why the message to Sabine was necessary. It's like, I'm not just going to be jumping to a random place. I'm going to stay out here so far to make sure that Thrawn's not just another quick jump back here. We're going to we're gonna have no idea where we're going to be. We're going to have no bearings. And I'm going to need to be found as opposed to finding my way back. I think that's why he had to stay there. All right, Blaine. Uh, we've talked for a long time. <laughs> Anything to add to that? I don't uh, have a ton to add because um, I enjoy the back and forth. Um, I definitely think that there are plenty of like convenient plot contrivances. I'll third the the frustration with Azadi. I had kind of the opposite experience. I really enjoyed and was really enamored with the finale the first time I watched it, and have grown to have more quibbles as I've watched it a few more times since then. Um, but I'm a fan of the Purgle. Um, and I, I think I tend to agree with what James is saying that he's controlling them. I think for the most part, he just didn't, this was something he didn't think to do until, until Kanan made the sacrifice until he got these visions and these revelations that it didn't occur to him to use his, this connection he has with animals in in this way i just don't i don't like i don't know how, how much i care for the idea that it's literally the the force telling our character what to do like I, it feels like it takes away any and all drama or conflict or choice it's just that he's just oh the force is giving us all answers and then the purg will come and win our battle it's like there's there's no drama in any of this it's all just like outside forces doing everything, which like, that, that makes sense. It doesn't see it like to pull something like, like Avatar. In that case, like in the end, when spoilers for Avatar, <laughs> which everyone's seen, yeah, but I haven't seen what you haven't seen Avatar. Uh, wait, are we talking about the animated series or the movie? The movie, oh, okay. Like in the, in the yeah. end, when the god Awa of the planet, you know, calls all the animals down to defeat, yeah, that, that has character significance. It's you know, Jake was able to convince her that they were on the right side they were on the side of the planet so the planet joined into their fight like that actually means something just having having the, the victory ha- handed to these characters here is just like it's it's remember why it's not how the force has ever worked but it just doesn't it doesn't tell us there's no drama in it because it doesn't tell us anything about the characters it doesn't make them sacrifice anything and the, well, the sacrifice here is a fake sacrifice because there was no reason for any of it to actually happen because he didn't need to be on the ship he didn't need to be on the bridge it's just it really just feels like they they realized they had to end the series but they didn't want to so they just kicked the can down the road and said okay we're just gonna send him into space it just, it, the whole ending every piece of this climax with the way they handle Ezra bringing in the purple feels like a cop-out to avoid actually telling us a story I mean I'm now I I have a tremendous respect for Loni. I, I don't think that's what they were actually thinking but that, that that's that's all I feel coming out of this is that we, we didn't actually get a story. We got, oh, maybe come back in five years, we'll have another TV show that may or may not tell you the end of the story instead. And it's just, it doesn't, 
it leaves me with nothing about the characters, nothing about the story. It's just, it feels like a cheat. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll agree with you there. Um, and I, I'm not normally getting negative on Star Wars because there's plenty of that other places. <laughs> but I will say this is a thing, like, it happens to an extent in this episode. I, there's a sense in which you don't have to wrap everything up in a nice, neat bow. Um, but it's a fine line you've got to walk, and I'm not... I, I, this probably stumbles a bit in the finale and then i feel like we have something similar in solo with sort of things left hanging with kira and maul and all of that it's like clearly they're planning something with these with these quote-unquote loose ends um kira and maul aren't the main character oh no no yeah i understand that it's that it's fundamentally different but it's like i'm saying like they're clearly planning something with these things and at some point it's a little bit unsatisfying to just say well wait and see what we do or are they like we we, we don't even know if they're planning there's there's just nothing confirmed it's all just in the ether and maybe he'll show up in resistance or we don't even know uh filoni's got here's the thing i i think filoni has nothing but undying love for ahsoka so I, I don't think for a second his plans for the ending of Ahsoka. <laughs> I have things to say about Ahsoka too. Okay, go on. Uh, but here's the thing. So we knew Ahsoka was alive between Clone Wars and the original trilogy. And no one was like, well, I mean, people were, but it wasn't negatively like, well, where was Ahsoka? Did we? Well, the well, well, Clone Wars was canceled. There was no ending. This is, like, this is Filoni. He wrote like 10 of the episodes here this is him telling his story but again i think that filoni knows where ahsoka was and i don't you know i don't i mean think about you know the hobbit and i i get it was originally a kid's book they were able to get away with this but it's not until lord of the rings that we're really told where gandalf constantly was going off to i think <laughs> the author has the right to an extent actually we, we, are, we are told actually very briefly oh, okay well I, I still I think the author has a right to an extent if they know they're coming back here and they know they have the answer this was never even Ahsoka show you know I, I think there's a little bit more credibility with with your problems with Ezra but as for Ahsoka this isn't her show he has every right to come back and be like this is what she was doing and then we'll be like oh that's cool when we see her come back with the the white robe and everything um okay well my, my problem with Ahsoka is not the ending it's the fact that when you bring one of the like the best characters in the show back, who hasn't been on the show up till now, you bring her back two episodes before the finale, that is a promise that they're coming back. Like, if she's not showing up again in the finale, there's absolutely no reason to even have her appear in a world between worlds. Like we've already we saw at the end of season two. That she was still, or at least saw her. Like it could have been symbolically, she's she's dead, or or we actually see her. So she's she's alive. Like we know that going back to season two. So bringing her back an episode before the finale is a promise that she's coming back in the finale, and to just not even to to have her have that part in there and say I'm coming back, and no, she's not because she's in one shot at the end in the epilogue. It's like it's it's as if we had. Like the ending of The Force Awakens on the cliff with Luke, and then Luke didn't show up until the epilogue of season of episode of episode nine. It's 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 like it's I I don't think I'm just going by expectations, but like I, I don't see how else what what else, what other interpretation there is of of bringing a character that important back and then promising their return right before the finale, and then not delivering on that. Okay, so I think I think it's different. 
in the Force Awakens thing <laughs> because with with the Force with that new sequel trilogy, I think we we have the good expectation that this will wrap up most likely Rey's story. And so when we see him at the end of The Force Awakens, that's a promise that he's going to come back and be involved in this particular story with this character because we know this character's story is ending in Episode Nine. Whenever we see Ahsoka in A World Between Worlds, within that context, you can take it as a promise of her being involved in the finale. Well, she does say, I'm, well, they do as, as much as say, I'm coming back. And then when we see her in the finale and we hear Sabine talk about it, I think we have to recontextualize what we know, what we see in uh, a world between worlds. No longer, to me, and and I don't even really feel as if I I'm having to say this just as as a defense of it. This is honestly kind of like how I saw it after the finale. That was no longer a promise that she's going to be. There was no. It wasn't a promise about the finale. It was a promise about just the future in general. <sighs> there is there is no future this that, is the finale that we know of yet but i think so long as she's still involved in ezra's story and whatever happens in the future because like i said i mean they just sent off sabine thrawn ahsoka and ezra there is no way that they're not going to pick these characters back up in a story so i'm okay with her limited involvement in the finale if it means you thought we were promising this, but what we're promising is that we've got an entire other story. We wrapped up the liberation of Lothal and we set up the creation of the Rebel Alliance. We've got another story with these characters and we're promising to tell you that. And it it only ended this year. So the fact we haven't heard anything and like, oh, we don't know, it's up in the air. I, I don't for a second believe that, you know, Filoni's been coy with his answers about these questions, but I think that his limited involvement with resistance because he it's it's his idea the the premise is his idea but he is not going to be involved as a supervising uh director that's because he's doing clone war saved i i think there's more to it than that which i'll take it i'll take any day over a continuation of this but still just the I, I wouldn't because i think that the idea i think there's a lot of cool stories they can tell in a post return of the jedi world with ahsoka and with ezra and thrawn being out who knows where and i think that he's you know yes he's going back and he's helping finish up this season but i don't think that that would have warranted an entire depart almost departure from the show because he said he's he's left it in other people's hands at this point so i i think he is absolutely writing something right now and ready to create whatever it will be um but i'm kind of okay with me like huh i wonder what they're gonna do as opposed to like being oh i'm mad that they didn't do it now but that's not even really my issue like why is she in a world between worlds like if you had had the ending of season two and then the epilogue and you saw her like okay i suspected she was alive here she is but the, the put, giving her that role in season two is, is, is in, in, in a world between worlds is a promise of involvement in this show. Otherwise, it has no purpose. It doesn't need to exist because we we've already established the possibility of her being alive. So if just showing her if all of this is and saying I'm coming back is just to say, oh, she's going to come back, but not really. Maybe sometime later on. It's like that's, that's not how you tell stories. I don't think it's a promise. I'm coming back in this show. I, I don't think you have to be that literal and 
hard and fast, this is what this means. One, I also think she serves a function in that episode itself. You know, she had to have been there to tell Ezra, I couldn't save my master and you couldn't save yours. She's functionally, she's there for a reason, even with like outside of that promise. And, you know, sometimes cameos that exist kind of tangentially in, in addition to a larger plot that promise something else. I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, like Maul had nothing to do with the story of Solo. I'm kind of okay. They're like, oh, and we're going to put Maul here to tease something we're going to do later. Yeah, it's not part of the real story here, but I mean, we're going to do it. They didn't show Maul at the beginning of Act 2. Well, this, I don't, I don't really see too much of a difference here. Okay. Um, <laughs> one final problem is, I don't, why is Ezra's final test his parents? Like, we resolve that plot back in the middle of season two, where he, when he, you know, when he's going crazy, I gotta find my parents, I gotta find my parents, he goes and rescues Azadi, and Ryder tells him the story of his parents' death, and he has that beautiful scene on the clifftop with, with, um, Kanan, where he finally let, like, lets go of all of that, and, you know, accepts his parents' death, and we've had nothing about his parents for the, for the, for the next two and a half seasons, to all of a sudden make the entire ending about his parents again, when the, the, that was like, that was a resolved part of his character years ago, just feels like, the, like this character is better than that. He's bigger than that. You don't have to go back to conflicts that have been long resolved. As the, it just made his character feel so small and as if he hadn't grown at all across this entire show. To go back to season two's conflict for him. Which, which, what, what was the Emperor even offering? I, I disagree strongly with that, but I don't want to rant too long. Blaine, if you have anything you want to add. <laughs> no, I'm curious to hear what you're going to say. What, what, what do you think the Emperor was offering? Like, the Emperor isn't just going to give Ezra a fantasy land to live in by himself for out of the kindness of his heart. He obviously wants it. Like, what does he get out of Ezra by giving him his family? I don't, I don't, I'm trying to, it's been like a couple weeks since I watched it again last, but isn't it something like if Ezra goes in there and tries to do something, maybe that's what's going to give the Emperor the ability to enter the world between worlds? It's, it's never said. Um, but I, I think it was heavily implied, you know, the said? second they're, the second they're out of the world between worlds, he's no longer able, the, I, I think the only reason he was even able to re, to interact with that place was because they were there. I think his interaction with the world between worlds is dependent on their re- interaction with it. Otherwise, he doesn't need them to be in there. Well, yeah. Well, we, well none of that's established, though. That's... Uh, I, I honestly feel, feel like that. that's what I took away from that episode, was that he was only able to communicate within that world when they were. And the second they left, that ability to interact with their in there was closed off from him. Otherwise, he's he should still be there with his blue fire trying to get in. And I don't think we're meant to think that that's what he's doing. Why can't he get in? <laughs> you, I don't know. Just having everything be completely mystical and having no, no actual answers. And this is like, this is the, the, the climax for the characters when we don't even know what's at stake or why the characters are making choices or what, like what, what's, what's the conflict. I don't even know what I'm watching. So talking about Ezra's parents, I I think there's a difference between like, you know, like you can't just say we resolve this, therefore ever bringing it up again as a conflict is bad writing. It, to me, it sounds like the exact same complaint of Luke was all Luke already faced the temptation of killing a loved one and one 
why are we seeing the exact same story rehashed with him being tempted to kill Ben? Things come back. You st- people struggle with the same thing again and again. It's one thing. It, it was easy to have closure whenever you're told they're dead. Closure is all you're offered. He was able to stand out there and resolve that conflict because they're dead. There's nothing left to do. In this case, you're you're no longer saying, oh, well, I put my past behind me long ago. Well, yeah, you did because there was nowhere to go but the future. You're now being offered. I, I mean, to think that nobody, like, you know, people, people make peace with the death of a loved one's you know, in life, you like, especially like if, if they lost a loved one in a tragic way, eventually to move on with like with their life, they make peace with that and they're able to continue to live. I do not think that it all means that there's not even, there wouldn't even be a semblance of temptation if the rules of reality are broken and they're offered a chance to go back. I, I think that means we, we narr- like emotionally and thematically, we are absolutely allowed the opportunity to reopen that storyline. For sure, but in narrative and storytelling language, that was uh, it, it hasn't been an issue for him. Like it's, it's been gone. It's not even in the picture for two and a half seasons. I, I think that makes it more powerful. I think it makes it more. It was something that he thought was over. He was never even going to have to deal with again. And then out of the blue, years later. Here it is, this thing that he never thought would have to be drudged up again. This thing, you know, because we had, we went through two seasons of, I just know they're gone. They're probably dead. Maybe they're not. We just went so long without finality. And as bitter and sad as it was to learn that they're dead, we can finally close that door. We finally have a semblance of we're done with this. And to feel like you can finally move on only to have old wounds reopened after so long, I, I see absolutely nothing wrong with that in, in terms of storytelling. It's it's perfectly fine to say, we thought we moved on from this. This character was able to close the book. That makes it all the more heartbreaking when it's like, man, I, I did everything I was supposed to do in this life. I moved on. I accepted it. I accepted the role of hero. And again, you're coming at me with this real temptation this time. It's not even the temptation to just give up anymore. It's the temptation to go back. I actually have the opportunity. I I felt that moment emotionally. It it very much um, connected with me. And it, I just I don't know. Just thinking about people in real life, as well as just storytelling, when you when you dangle that in front of a person, regardless of whether it's been resolved, whenever you fundamentally change what's happening, where the temptation isn't any like the temptation moves from. I want to grieve and quit to, I can actually change this. I think you absolutely have the liberty to go back to that conflict. And I think that's why they were able to go back to it in The Last Jedi, where beforehand he was able to, you know, say no to the temptation of killing his father because, you know... But the, the, the conflict in The Last Jedi was, it was not about that. It was... That was... There was a there was a flashback where they spoke about the conflict. But that was never the conflict of the, of the movie. It would have been disappointing if that was the entire conflict of the film, rehashing the last the Return of the Jedi again. Sure, but then at that point, if we're just arguing about screen time given to something, I I don't know. Then it's then it just seems <laughs> subjective to me because again, just looking at these characters, I I think it makes sense considering the amount of time we spent with it before. And the way things have changed now, the way 
the resolution happened prior to time travel. Whenever you introduce time travel, I think it is more than fair to to reopen that. And I think well, I think it was also set up again with with Kanan's death, and then again with the ability to save Kanan. That's what that was for. If I would be more disappointed if if he had to look at that moment and say no. I'm not going to save Kanan. And then a similar situation never came out. It's like, wait, why was he tempted if it's never going to actually come up again? That would have been a promise unfulfilled to me. For, for its own sake. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I pretty much dominated this entire discussion of the finale. Um, we are, uh, we got to go pretty soon. But uh, Blaine, is there anything at all you want to mention about this final episode before we uh, close the discussion? I will say, I'll mention just one little moment that I really appreciated when Sabine is sort of making a distraction for Ezra so that he can go out and confront Thrawn, regardless of uh, regardless of like what you think of the plan and everything. I think that's a really touching moment um, when they they share this sort of unspoken respect um, and acknowledgement uh, because their relationship isn't really dealt with in a nearly as straightforward a way as Kanan and Hera's is. Yeah, I did love that a lot. Like, like in, in like season two, there was the super awkward kind of where he was constantly tr- trying to flirt with her, but being really awkward yeah. about it. And then that kind of faded away, but it, it sort of came up in a in a, the first uh, the first episode. It was like, "Are you with Sabine?" Well, yeah, I'm with her. Well, I'm not with her, with her kind of thing. And it almost feels like, given three or four years, this could have blossomed into a romance or something because there is a great mutual respect they build in like little moments like that over these last couple episodes. It was great to see that kind of that 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 relationship evolve so subtly over the seasons. Yeah, and even just beyond the two of them together, there, it's it's kind of a heartbreaking thing. Like where he, at first, whenever he says, "Okay, if not this, then what other plan do we have?" I was like, "Man, I, I thought that Ezra kind of had a plan, like he had this figured out." And then to learn that he was like almost dangling false hope that it could be another way in front of Hera just it was all just to try to get them sidetracked and and looking somewhere else and whenever you see you know chopper open up the thing and and Sabine like well look over here what if we did this to know that like the camera is very much highlighting and emphasizing Ezra and Sabine and in the background kind of like dimmed out we just see everyone kind of go back to the way they would in any other episode coming up with some sort of harebrained scheme that would end up winning and here it's like the scheme of these episodes ah oh, <laughs> this is a great one but uh yeah i just thought pulling out the sound and focusing on the subtle looks on their faces between the two while you kind of have everything go on around them is just feloni is so great at these like quiet emotional moments um and it's i feel like he ends up coming to the point where he understands the characters so well and he directs scenes so well where he can just like pack these really emotional punches and just like hit you with it when you when you don't expect it. One of the last things I want to say just about this season as a whole, were y'all a, a little bit disappointed in, in uh, Callus's lack of involvement? Yeah. I didn't think about that, but now that you mentioned it, yes, I <laughs> another, Well, another thing. Because I, I really, man, whenever he greets them on Yavin, I'm like, Man, they did all of this amazing character work with him while he was the enemy and then struggling with being Fulcrum. Like, he's finally here. I'm sure they've got some sort of emotional plot thread about, like, like you know, it's one thing for the crew of the Ghost to accept him, but 
you know, he's they're probably gonna have all these dramatic moments with him coming to grips with the fact that he betrayed people and trying to earn the respect of of the the rebellion itself. But it seems like he was just kind of in the background for the entirety of the season. I was I was a little disappointed by that. I won't go on on that. <laughs> All right. Um, so anything else before we close the discussion? No. I think we're going to skip the top five episodes. It's getting pretty late for uh, you, Blaine. So just uh, what overall thoughts on like we we have we didn't have you on for the previous three se- episodes. So what are your overall thoughts on this season, and how does it compare with your thoughts of the previous three? Sure. I I still think I probably enjoyed season three the most. Um, especially the the I don't know. The end of the end of season three with its epic scope and scale and everything was just something that um, I don't think we saw anything quite like that at the at the end of the sh- in the rest of the show. Um, of course, season two is something. Being an Ahsoka fan is, is something else entirely. But I would just I think I could just end by saying that in Filoni I trust, and I really do mean that. Um, I am looking forward to seeing these stories continued in some way shape and form and i'm with you james i he's got a plan and i trust in i trust in the master plan uh the master code breaker i would be right there with you. <laughs> this episode destroyed some of my trust but however yeah I, I love filoni and whatever he creates in future i will be there to watch it but like when people say they want him in charge of all star wars i'm like did you see uh did you see the season of finale uh, season finale of season four i do we want that happening <laughs> in all of star wars um so yeah d- yeah i i d- don't take this as like a, a hatred against feloni i love him but it, it's just my disappointment that uh speaking right there um really quickly since we are ending this season and our discussion of the tv shows you probably have a bit more of a finger on the pulse of the larger fandom what do you think the legacy of this show is just in larger star wars fandom blaine that's a really good question i mean i think time will tell for sure as as it does with anything else um but I, <laughs> well, I think it's going to depend a lot on what kind of follow-up shows we have. Um, or if we don't see any follow-ups, I think you could see it become like some sort of, like some sort of rabid fandom that's, you know, always clamoring for the end. Uh, much like we've seen with the Clone Wars up until this point. We know we're, we know we're getting more. So in 10 years, we might get a, a rebel saved or something. Right. <laughs> right. Who knows? Yeah. From what I can tell, it doesn't seem to be like... There isn't nearly as large of a fan base for this as there was for Rebels. Like, people seem to enjoy it. There's, there's a whole contingent that, like, violently hates it and just, I don't care about them. But this is, the overall fan seems to be a more, more uh, kind of mildly positive view of the series. But it seems to be a lot smaller. Like, the season, the series ended this earlier this year, and there didn't seem to be all that much to do in the fandom that, about the fact that it was ending. Um, it just doesn't seem to really have the footprint that the Clone Wars did. Yeah, and it's hard for me to tell because there's such skepticism with anything that Disney Disney Lucasfilm does it's hard for me to tell how much of that is just anything that Disney mm. Lucasfilm didn't do has to be better um and so that's why i think it's going to take a little bit of time yeah um because 20 years from now everybody's going to think the last jedi was fantastic oh there's no doubt <laughs> um so i don't know yeah okay you have any any thoughts to add to that james uh, yeah, I was actually thinking something really similarly to that, where it's, that was, when, when did this end? It was, it was this year, February right? February or ended. March? Uh, yeah. So it was post The Last Jedi? Yes. So I, I think at that moment, 
we we really saw a a shift a shift that was kind of already beginning just within the the loop or the Disney era um and i i do not believe that even outside of that you know had disney not taken over i i don't think that this would have been as beloved as the clone wars was in any scenario but i i don't think that we can discount just discount this the shift in the way star wars has been received even before coming out yeah i, I guess the the last jedi ate all the conversation similarly it kind of ate all the conversation around solo a few months later <laughs> Exactly. And that's the thing. Yeah. If I mean, Solo is the most recent film, but we're still talking about Last Jedi. So if a new additional origin film can't steal the spotlight, I don't think we can really use the fact that Rebels ending wasn't the talk of the town as as an example that that it's not there. And, you know, like I said, I don't think it best case scenario that it would have been as well received. But I can say that doing research for the show and looking in more as I as I did look into the show, I have found that there is a large community of Star Wars fans out there that really do love this show. Mm -hmm. And I think that years from now, you know, I'm just imagining a teaser of ah Ahsoka and Sabine walking through some darkened place and and shining a light on like Ezra revealed to just look different, that there would be a very similar level of excitement in the air. you're like, oh, what have they got for him now? What has happened in that gap? And you know, I, I think years from now, hopefully, if if things have settled down, that that people will be excited to see where they take these characters, and it will be met with a lot more posit, uh, positivity. And given Pablo Hidalgo's tendency to rework cart the animated shows into the larger canon through all you know different media, it, that does seem that he will be able to kind of slowly, even if there's the fandom is as big now, constantly he's constantly endearing the audience. The, you know, the larger Star Wars audience to these characters and stuff by throughout books and novels and all that. All right. So that, that was a uh, season four. Thanks for uh, joining us, Blaine. Yeah. Thanks for having me on again. Good stuff. Where can people find you out? Uh, you know, follow your stuff online. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at, at D E P T underscore of underscore tourism. And then you can follow all my podcasting on home one radio. Just search home one radio anywhere you find your podcasts. All right. And uh, for us, again, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please go and rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find out other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And what about you, James? Yeah, so uh, mainly if you're just looking uh, looking for things I may have written or just thoughts on general movies, um, you can find me on Letterboxd. I'm there as uh, J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, and again, the two of us admin a Facebook discussion group uh, called Star Wars, or Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. You know, we try to have a lot of positive conversations about the entirety of Star Wars. So if you love the prequels and you love the sequels and you love the original trilogy and everything Dave Filoni's done... We would love to have you come over and join our, our conversation. We try to keep posts regular. Um, so yeah, definitely feel free to, to head over there. And uh, I am on also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm there at Gabe A. Green. And so next week, we'll be talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story, uh, which is, feels a lot like a spiritual continuation of, um, of this show. Just much more grim. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to watch it again with this backstory i think i'm i'm going to end up caring more about the first act of this movie a lot more now mm. so until next week we will see you in the prequel how have you people stayed alive this long mm.